You lousy bunch of bleeding hearts. You're not going to intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. Rotten kids, you work your life out. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 72, because 75 through 73, we're done doing commercial break. Oh, was that in reference to? Uh, so apparently, <laughs> we're going to start out with a bit of news today. Um, the Oscars and their decade and a half long plea to become relevant are going full in on the fact that ABC now, this is uh, from a Guardian article, uh-huh. Um that it has to be under three hours. The has broadcast, be, yeah. the broadcast has to be under three hours, and as such, they are going. And because they have to do all five songs, because Lady Gaga complained, she's doing all five songs. No, but they they're doing. They're only going to really do two of the songs. Now they're going to do all five. Good, yeah. Um, let's, let's have all the songs. So what they're going to do is during the commercial break, some of the less appealing, less well-toted. Um, categories are going to be presented during the commercial break. Like best song? Yeah, hopefully. Or <laughs> that would be good. Best actor. Um, but no, so, so you know, obviously... Did I they say what they're going to do? They haven't said what categories. There's been some rampant speculation that cinematography might be one, which is... I mean, I suppose... <laughs> it's like that Alfonso Cuaron. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is, a, this is both a good... Is that movie. Emmanuel Lubic? Is that, is that, that's his frequent collaborator, right? Emmanuel? No, it's... Lubezki. Um, Lubezki, right? Lubezki, yeah. Lubezki. And like, this is his, like, get at him. It's like, fuck you, man. Well, you should have waited for me. This would be... It's funny. If Alfonso Cuaron was not getting nominated, this would be a perfectly good year because you don't have that kind of Deacon's Award hanging over you. Um, yeah. Like you did last year with, with Blade Runner 2049. Um, but yeah, that's... I mean, that's an, kind of an important award. No, it is. But... I assume, I don't think that's going to be, I think it's going to be your live action shorts, um, your animated short. Apparently we made the mistake of making a special episode on that, because that's going to be a nothing reward. Because nobody cares about it. Um, and the sounds, I would assume something like that was going to I mean, be thrown to the side. But, that's you know what, cool, fuck it. I mean, I, part I would, of me is, the guy who really likes efficiency is like, yeah, I mean, I don't really care who won, like, sound. I can find that out afterwards. But it's also kind of, I would rather them cut out many other things out of the set, like all these weirdo montages and the speech by the president of the academy, and or like you know, talking about the process of the award. And I think the the big problem is, and there was a lot of criticism in the sense of why not just move it to the governor's ball award because you know you're already doing the technical achievements um, in the general scope of film there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really an individual. Like these are the individual achievements in film, and you know these are regular people who have just done, according to the academy. Incredible work on a film of that year. Well, this is and they deserve like that moment. 
Especially because some of these Televised. movies are only going to win this award. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if if they didn't show any of these awards, like, we wouldn't have seen Phantom Thread win any awards a couple of years ago, which would have been weird because it was, you know, one of the best movies of the year. And do we really need to listen to, like, Rami Malek or Christian Bale talk for two and a half minutes? Oh. I mean, just <laughs> Please, maybe no. cut them short. Um but they have such important things to they, say. They don't, and, and they're already going to be famous. Like they're already they like this is nothing to them. It's it's another award. Maybe maybe it means something. It means something to them. But they're obviously going to have their moment in the spotlight. Like let the little guy who did something yeah, incredible exactly. in the year like have who has their forty five seconds back of the auditorium. This reminds me, and we're going to talk about this later. Um, like one of the worst ceremonies in history, a 2004 ceremony where like they presented the awards in the stands. Remember that? They, they, yeah, they yeah, like yeah. are bring everyone up front. Well, I just like, noticed what that. What the fuck? And they didn't even really save that much time because that broadcast was three hours and 14 minutes long. Yeah. So that one ran over too. Um, Dumbasses. But also, what they're going to be doing apparently is um, looking for more famous names uh, to present the awards. So. Somebody like Allison Janney is not going to be presenting Best Supporting Actor. What? Yeah. Why? Because, you know, but who cares about, about Allison Janney? Then you should have given <clears> it to Laurie Metcalf. That was your main concern is making sure you had a favorite person. Had her and Roseanne Barr get back together. That have been good, huh? Right, well, now I need to drink, Mario. Oh. And it's a good thing we brought some beers tonight. Oh, but on good news, one good piece of news. Yeah. I ra- found out that Panos Cosmatos' next film with Nicolas Cage is going to be The Color of Outer Space, the H.P. Lovecraft book. So that's oh, going to be okay. a yeah, right. short story. That's going to be... That'd be cool. That's probably going to be on our list at some point. Yeah, I mean, I'll be looking forward to that one. Um, this is an Allagash Brewing Company. They are from Portland, Maine, which falls... A big, a big national brewery. Kind of, I think this is the first Allagash we've had. And I wasn't sure, but you said that it was, is, and I kind of believe yeah, you. This is, what, the second biggest... I'd say the second biggest New England brewery. Outside of, uh, no, maybe there's Harpoon. But, yeah, um, but there's a bunch like of Samuel ones, Adams is obviously but, the yeah, biggest, but but Alec- one of the top ones. Um, so this is a limited release beer. It is uh, two lights. It is beer brewed with Sauvignon Blanc must, fermented with lager and champagne yeast. And the reason... Do we know what style this is? I will look it up because I'm not seeing it listed. It's. I think the style is beer. <laughs> Um, what, what a, a style. It is a 6.7% uh, alcohol by volume. Um, you know, the label has a lot of very whiny yes, things. Yes, Allagash, I'm 21 years or older. Listed on it? Um, the reason behind this very whiny beer we're going to drink uh, will be clear later on in the episode. There, there is no reference to what... It, I think you might actually be accurate in describing this as beer, Um there's there's literally no comparison to what it could. It's a it's a wild ale, so it's going to be a sour. Um, it smells very. It smells like a sour. It smells like a. Something. Yeah, especially when you have something in Sauvignon Blanc. Hmm. And it does. It has. It does smell pleasant though. Yeah, you gotta it does. Think this. If we just stuck our noses in it, let's touch the tops together. Oh, that is surprisingly unsour. Mm. I can taste that champagne. That champagne yeast, especially. Um, it's it's kind of got a like a Sauvignon lager, Vienna lager, not Vienna lager, probably um, almost, like a Mexican lager so with, you think with so? like wine kind of mixed in. I feel like the wine <clears throat> kind of makes it almost taste like a white or like a Belgian. No, maybe no. I guess actually that's a little more accurate. 
I think, a Belgian. But it tastes really good. It tastes really good. It's fine. Um, honestly, as somebody who is a big fan of beers that are typically aged or presented with champagne yeast, um, this is a really good introduction, but it kind of pales in comparison to Oxford, Connecticut's own OEC brewery. Well, where is that, Mario? That's in Oxford, Connecticut. I no, just, where, I is, where is it? Oh, where is it? Um, where is it? I don't know, man. It ain't on the table. I can't. What am I supposed to do? Conjure it. That's Use like a 20, spell. That's 20 miles out of the way. Oh, I spend like two hours a day at the gym, ladies. <laughs> uh, you know I'm, who spends a lot of time at the gym? Jake Gyllenhaal. No. Oh. You really think he does? He clearly spends a lot of time in the gym. He's, he's a you little, think he just comes little, like that out of the package? A, there's a little flad in, in this movie. Oh, yeah? I think a little... Compared, compared to what we've seen before. You're, you, you, think, <laughs> you think that that was like... I mean, his, his, his boyfriend in that was definitely cut, but like... Compared, it was fine. Do you want to tell people what we're talking about here? No, I just want to keep talking about what we think was. <laughs> oh, we want to talk about, about the modern about day Jake Gyllenhaal's body. Jake Gyllenhaal physique. Uh, we are talking about the Dan Gilroy written and directed uh, Netflix original feature, Velvet Buzzsaw. I'm quite curious to know what you think. I think sober hasn't been good for him. Pierce was in the full bloom of alcoholism here. Exactly. Never should have quit drinking. No originality. No courage. My opinion. I can't save you. I found something. Who did these? Uh, mesmeric. A uh, guy upstairs. He died. And you just took them. He had my family or friends. I can make you rich. And I paused there because I knew you were going to put a sound clip in. I will. So you're joining us probably 30 seconds after the fact. Um... <laughs> It is a satire spoof kind of pulpy film. Um, kind of. About the art world uh, and um, a assistant, per se, uh, of Rene Russo's um, art gallery owner. Uh, Josefina is the is, is by, played by Zabe Ashton, who kind of discovers her dead neighbor's artwork. Um, which has an ability to draw people into a spell. Um, it becomes the talk of the town as Morph Vander, uh, Vandalwalt, played by the flabby Jake Gyllenhaal, um, sells it, you know, sells, sells the, the, the masterfulness of this artwork and everyone kind of loses yeah. their mind. But the artwork is uh, un, unpleased with the profitability it's been taking. Apparently. Makes other pieces of art kill people. Like monkeys. Sure. Like the monkeys. Quick side note about my biggest disappointment with this film, which is pretty irrelevant to the discussion at hand. Uh, when Also, there's going to be rampant spoilers, as always. You know why there's rampant spoilers are okay in this discussion? Watch the trailer. It shows literally almost all the deaths. The yeah, movie. yeah, it does. Um, when Bryson, the Billy Magnuson's character, is killed by getting drawn into the, the painting, they missed a perfect... Uh, trope, which I love, like a cliche thing in horror films, uh-huh. where some sort of artwork or something kills a person, uh, of them looking at the painting and like maybe him being like in slung over, yeah. like the car being like having been beaten to well, death. Well, I do that a little that bit. Been Josephina at the end, yeah. when she gets weirdly sucked into this graffiti place it's, it's less, that has really it's good cell reception. Much less fun than having a bunch of monkeys with wrenches. 
well, with monkey wrenches. With monkey wrenches. Sure. Beating a Swedish man. Well, especially because... <laughs> beating a poor man's Alexander Skarsgård. During that trailer, I was like, oh, Alexander Skarsgård's in this. Then I saw the movie, I was like, that is not He Alexander is shorter Skarsgård. and rounder. He is also, he's also flabby, apparently. This guy looks like Alexander Skarsgård. Come on. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Um, what, uh, so you liked it? Did you like it? I like it under the pretense that people, like there's, um, the Washington Post today posted this article about how Velvet Buzzsaw is a revenge fantasy against elites, making it perfect for the age of Trump. That's bullshit to me. Okay. Uh, I find this movie to just be a light pulp film in, in many ways. There, there's like kind of, su- not subtle, very blatant like kind of punches in the gut at, at kind of the uh, commodification of yeah. art. But really this movie is just a goofy pulp horror film for me. Uh-huh. Uh, most of the performances are incredibly outlandish. I love Jake Gyllenhaal in this. Jake Gyllenhaal is fucking great. But Jake Gyllenhaal is just like really leaning into just how fucking goofy this world is. Um, but he's do- but he's but it's it's earnest. It's very right, earnest. Exactly. And, okay. and, and, and and this is what I think is is great with this. Um, I mean, this film's being pretty fairly land based. It's kind of in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, people are expecting you know another Nightcrawler that had kind of some of the that gra- not necessarily gravity to it, but had more of that kind of sheen to well, it. But, but even Nightcrawler in itself was was pulpy and, and outlandish yeah, in its yeah. presentation of the characters. I, mean, I feel like this is a, a, a fairly good follow-up to Nightcrawler in the sense oh, that... I agree. It's also... It's just... Nightcrawler was um, unpleasantly subversive if you weren't, like... If you didn't fall under its spell. And I think this is kind of the same thing. Um, it's not a no- it's not an easy movie. It's not a normal movie. It's it's um, very slow for the material. It doesn't get into the actual horror of it for a good well, hour. I'd I say. don't find any of the horror compelling or interesting. No, actually, actually, and I think because of that, the movie has a fairly odd pace to it. Like it has these, you know, it has these scenes with people talking, and then there'll just be someone dead, and you'll you'll know instantaneously that they're going they're going to die <laughs> because but, you saw the trailer. Well, yeah, because you saw the trailer, but then. But they also do these weird inter, they intercut between characters that have like whose deaths and lives have nothing really to do with each other, like the you know when Mort gets killed and Josephine gets killed, um, Josephine is not even talking to him, and he's just and he had just yelled at Rene Russo, mm-hmm. so their deaths and lives at that juncture aren't connected by anything. But yet Dan Gilroy insists on connecting them i think maybe I think just to just get like, out of the movie quicker so, yeah no it felt like that it's just like i need to knock out my two leads right now right because we're pushing up against you know two hours and then it's like he made the film and was like oh right i forgot about piers um call back in malkovich for a day just have him walk around the beach well that's so i mean my i have a couple i don't know i didn't i appreciated this movie i guess for what it was trying to do um, and I think it was an interesting what do you think film. What do you think it's trying to do? Because I don't think... Like, don't my thing think, is I don't think it's trying to do anything besides just be goofy. And I think... I don't think it's trying to be goofy per se, but I think he's trying... I think he's trying stuff out. 
I think he was trying to make an interesting movie, and in making an interesting movie, he ended up making a movie that isn't very interesting. There's some weirdly compelling parts, technically, for me. I think so, too. But then I think he undercuts them with, like, these weird tonal shifts. So, like... Yeah, no, it's... I, I, I'm not a big fan of Gilroy's... John Gilroy's editing in this. It's, 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 yeah. it's oddly paced in a way that doesn't serve the story. Like, it ramps up really heavily in the beginning, and it kind of sets a nice kind of tension and sets a nice... Uh, elevation to the characters, but then it just kind of settles down and, and doesn't really hit any sort of logical beats. Well, I think, like, deaths just kind of happen. Well, I, and, I think so. I think I have actually differ with you in the sense that I think the beginning is really rough. And then as, she, as soon as she finds the paintings, it kind of settles into this nice... Then it begins to have an idea. And it, it settles into kind of an exploration of that idea. Of the, this, you know, this... And I'll go into a little bit more of like why I and I kind of enjoyed it, and it, um, it made me angry also simultaneously. Um, and then it settles into this idea about art and like you know, um, you know, who's art for? You know, does the artist own anything? You know, can it be repurposed? And all of a sudden, the artist is doing some repurposing of some things that they kind of show in a couple of montages. But then the deaths start happening, and then I was just like, blah, okay. Like then it's then it's really uneven and it doesn't seem to know what it's about anymore and you keep getting like David Diggs just like looking at stuff and I don't even <laughs> I don't even know why he's in it except to make those eggs or pancakes but I'm pretty sure it's eggs because he's putting pepper in it for like five minutes of no, I, I put pepper in my point. pancakes. Well, Jake Gyllenhaal is yelling at him like the funniest line in the movie when he's, when he's like I'm. My appreciation for your work is quickly evaporating, or yeah. something. Um, <laughs> and, and that's that's kind of the issue too. I would agree. I agree with you that the beginning of the script is rough and it settles in. Editing wise, though, I think that it's I, it's it's a different story. And I think that's where kind of the juxtaposition goes. Is it it builds has a technical film. It builds a certain amount of of tension. It build it builds um, a, a good kind of pace. A good. Um, rhythm mm-hmm. to it and then kind of loses that whereas alternatively for me the story starts out rough like like the dialogue and the character motivations well yeah, then it kind of leans into it so it's it's really jarring that to me two of the three most important elements in a film mm-hmm. directing kind of um co like conflict with one another. They, mm. they juxtapose with one another in that, you know, the writing's rough in the beginning and it kind of settles into itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's edited really well in the beginning and then kind of gets rough. Yeah. And and so it's it's a little weird. And that's kind of but that to me enhances the charm of the film. In the fact that like this just felt like a Roger Corman movie too. It's me. well and that, I think that's uh, to its credit, it's still maintained I, I you know, let's give I'll give Jake Gyllenhaal a lot of credit. I'll give Rene Russo a lot of credit. Um, I'll give John Malkovich a lot of credit, even um, even though he's not in the movie a lot, he actually grounds it when he is yeah. in it. Um, and even Natalia Dyer as that assistant who finds all the bodies. That was that was to me was one of the funniest kind of running gags in that yeah, movie. Because at first I actually really thought that the paintings were going to be possessed, but that somehow she was going to Me be too. and i was like this would be clever if like somehow she's the one that's cursed right because every time she got hired by somebody they die. that person would inevitably die right. um, uh, and just that response like when she finds you know morph's body and just ah like she screams like the third time and goes oh fuck me yeah yeah, yeah. 
That's pretty good. And like how she always has coffee in her hands yeah. from Starbucks, like all the time. So Starbucks obviously actually kinda, paid a pretty good amount of money. That I was guess, one thing that kind of bugged me. That's a minor gripe. These product people placement? would not be drinking. No, it's pro- product placement's always fine. I don't care. But these people would not be drinking Starbucks. Maybe in LA they think differently of Starbucks than we do I'm here. From the West Coast. You you don't like your Starbucks? No, we no. We're we're worse out west. Um so yeah, and I, and I kept, you know, it's pitched as kind of a satire, and it's presented, like, you know, reviews have kind of spoken of it as a satire, but um, Dan Gilroy is supposed to be kind of a good writer, and I think there's some lines in this that are too, e- like, he's t- it's too easy to be, a, like, a I full mean, satire, you know what I mean? To be fair, we are, we're basing this off of, you know, the kind of what, I mean, what he did with... Um, Nightcrawler, but I think, but like given like you know Kong Skull Island or Roman J Israel aren't really known yeah. for their Starbuck right. I mean his first feature was Free Fucking Jack, so Nightcrawler I think hit a extremely great pace in terms of script. It barely missed my top one hundred pivotal. Um, but maybe not. He's not necessarily maybe the he's best not. Writer. But I, I if you if this is going to be a satire, it's got to be deeper than um, that gallery owner walking into John Malkovich's studio and seeing a pile of garbage and saying it's extraordinary and John Malkovich saying that's not art. You know what I mean? Although and, I do and it's got to it's got to be for me anyway, like it's got to be deeper. And I think there's an interesting point to that. In it feels in a lot of ways like a first draft or, a few, or like not really a rough, I agree a, not really you. a cleaned up script. Yeah. But he, he had so much trust in maybe his direction or knowing who he wanted for the film that he's like, it'll work. It'll be fine. And that's kind of the thing is like those lines, a lot of those lines are bad, but like that it's not art thing is delivered so well by Malkovich. Like just so flippantly by Malkovich that you're like, you're kind of like, that's a bad, you're kind of like, you know, kind of. But then the whole, I mean, so you're talking about character motivation in the beginning of the, uh, you know, in the beginning of the movie. And, you know, so that guy, that gallery owner who's supposed to know something and who's supposed to be a big deal and who's supposed to be stealing this, you know, um, you know, big artist and and peers, um, he looks at the bags of garbage and he's like extraordinary. And then he looks at whatever it was that John Malkovich is painting and he's you're got talking, a big, talk about the John Don John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got a big problem. Don, with D- it. John Don Don. John Don Don. Yeah. Um, he's got a big problem with it. And it's like, okay, so the garbage is good, but this actual painting is bad. Like this doesn't really make any sense, and maybe if this is a, if <clears throat> if he wasn't just presented as kind of knowing something, and if we're saying that um, Radora Hayes is knows something, and we find out later that he used to work in the ga- he got his start working in her gallery, we would have to assume, and she could just and she just fires people left and right that kind of piss her off. We have to assume that he knows something also. So why is he simultaneously so well-versed in art, but then also so stupid? You know what I mean? It no. doesn't make any sense. And that doesn't strike me as satire. That just strikes me as bad writing. Yeah, and that is, that is you know, a problem with it. And to go off of that, you know, the, the easy marks of jokes to kind of, like, undercut your characters, there is a lot of points that you mentioned where he just tries to, like, get out of a scene quickly. A lot of the death scenes, especially kind of, seemed like they try to rush out talking about John Don Don scene, which I think is set up really well when he goes into that kind of um, the, 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 the three, tableau, the thing, tableau yeah. 
art piece and it slowly becomes an actual addict. That's really, I mean, done before, but it's well shot. It's it's well put together. And then it just kind of like, uh, ghost hand comes out and hangs him. Yeah. And it's just like, why'd you have to like rush yourself out of it? You could well, have done something that kind of built, like there's a, there was like a doll and a, and a, and a videotape there. Yeah. Like do something with that. Like have the hand come out of the videotape and maybe like bash him. Right. You know, that builds on that. Randomly having a light flicker and then having it hang him is just like, it just I mean, seems like you just didn't know what to do. I was eating an egg sandwich and I was watching that part of the movie. It was a good egg sandwich. I was really enjoying it. Was there any cheese on that egg sandwich? There was cheddar cheese. Oh, nice. Um, Homemade egg salad? Oh, yeah. Did you you put pepper on the egg? I do put some pepper, yeah. I put a little garlic powder. Like pre-ground pepper or do you ground? I do pre-ground pepper. I can't be bothered with that stuff. It's it's significantly better. I do some pink pink Himalayan salt, though. Oh. It's pretty good. See, I do, I do it's some, a little lighter. When I do it, I do iodized salt, but I do the four-color peppercorn that I actually grind. So maybe we have to meet in the middle. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll make the ultimate egg sandwich. The, the next episode uh, of so Pivotal Film of We'll be right back with, with uh, our 75s. Um, <laughs> um, um, so I but you're kept, eating egg I, have to, I was eating egg sandwich. So was just, the point is I was a little distracted by my egg sandwich. Well, I was also very distracted during When I saw the hand, for different reasons. I was like, wait. Whose hand is that? So because it's on because it's on Netflix, I just clicked rewind for a couple of seconds, and I was like, and then I saw the hand again, but I like I must have blinked, and I was like, I had to have missed. Well, because there was that earlier where scene the hand the came hand, from, you know. I guess with, um, but at least the monkeys the came scene. out of the no. But there's an earlier the scene where kind of like you see a hand with Josephina when she's originally looking at it, but it's like that's not something that's that's not a theme that's carried throughout the film and then it's like then promptly dropped after that yeah exactly like you don't see a hand come out when tony collette's you know gets her arm cut off um no although that would have been in. cool if it, her arm went all the way through that would have been interesting or she like starts pulled out and like you see the hand grab her but yeah there's there's poor tony really... collette she's had she's had a rough 12 months here in the movie she didn't cut off her own arm luckily no no, no, no. um yeah no, I, I would agree with that. There's just really strong inconsistencies. But like I said, for me, that adds to the charm if I look at this as... As a, as like as, a B-movie. As a B-movie, yeah. which I think it is. There is one thing I want to point out, though, which I think is exceptional. And, and early on, and I don't know why this, this was such a hallmark for me, but I think if anybody's going to watch this film, this is something to look out for. And that is uh, Isis Mustin's uh, and Trish Somerville's costume design. Some of the costume design choices in this are tremendous. Yeah. And I think they speak, the costume design in a lot of ways speaks more to the characters, especially with the morph, than the writing does. There's that scene at the party where Rene Russo's character is talking about, you know, Jack, John Malkovich being pulled away mm-hmm. um, with uh, the. John Don Don. Not John Don Don. By John Don Don, but with the other artist. Um, and David Diggs, yeah, David Diggs. Damish. And when Jake Kellnall is kind of flirting with Josephina, he's just wearing this kind of like button-down plaid shirt with like these really weird, nerdy sort of designs. They're mm-hmm. they're really anachronistic for the time and like what everyone else is dressed as. And it's like that really encapsulates morph, but it's not. It's subtle. Right. And there's a lot of really good subtle costume design in this that I think I kind of thought the carries same thing, yeah. the tone better than the screenwriting. And the direction, especially what I thought was actually surprisingly subpar in this, was Robert Ellsworth's cinematography. Me too. It's so flat and but so. Here's the thing, and I kind of th- I thought the same thing. I was, 
which is I, shocking. I, I was shocked because I, and especially because I, I read a couple of reviews and they're like, oh, his um, cinematography elevates the material a little bit. And I was like, this doesn't elevate anything. It doesn't detract from anything. No, it just is. But I it's think like the direction a... and the editing is so bad that it doesn't really give his, uh, his picture, his images a chance to kind of stand out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think the best shot in the movie is the end of the movie after those that couple buys a a, a deece on the street from that Mexican guy um, for $5. And then the camera kind of swoops around and, you know, he's looking around and you get like a really nice L.A. sky in the back right next to like an on-ramp to the freeway. Um, I thought that was a really compelling shot because there was a thought- lot there was a lot contained in it. I didn't think there was anything contained in any of these I thought there was the work he was doing previously. I thought there was a nice dimensionality to the the locker scene, um, where it kind of shows when he turns that corner, when Morph turns that corner, kind of like has like a flat iron building sort of style to it. That was and that's framed well. I mean, that's but that's that's to me like some of the there's so few moments where you're like, oh, this is an actual like talented. Extremely talented right. Academy Award. What has we have two now? One or two uh, Academy Awards? Has at least one, one for There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to look that up. Never going to forget that one. Because uh, he should have not won. Yeah, um, he should have won. Assassination of Jesse James by Coward Robert Ford. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you should rewatch that movie. I've seen it many, how many times. How many times? To- okay. That's not a. Do people talk about what. I that, love that what movie. I, what iconic shots. From there will be blood. All of them meet, match the the standing on top of the the train during the train robbery. All of them. that that match in terms of replication in the pop culture icon iconography. Every single one. No, that no. Wow, how? what what scenes but do I mean, you see emulated? The, is in that, there will be but blood? if is that like the um. Is that the credential by which we're judging good well, cinematography? No, because I think I because think that the movie, Matrix is the best cinematography ever. No, but I, ever. Think, I think that movie is much more. I think the assassination of Jesse James is much more elevated. I think it's a well-directed movie, decently acted, but it's extraordinarily elevated See, by its cinematography. I think so too. Whereas There Will Be Blood is kind of just like consistently great. I don't think so. I think There Will Be Blood. Is, I mean, we're going to go into this in many okay. in like four right, fifty I episodes. I forgot about um, that. But I think there. I think something like that. I actually think that the assassination of Jesse James suffers because of something like At Eternity's Gate, where they're kind of doing the same. They're kind of the camera plays the same role. You know what I mean? It's setting mood. It's setting. It's setting tone. You're getting um, internal, like an internal dialogue out in front on the screen, um, whereas. I mean, they're different movies. That, you know, he's not. There's not as much movement and stuff in There Will Be Blood. Oh no, no I'm not. I'm not criticizing where, the last lack of movement. The places where, no, but they're, they're just kind of different. You know what I mean? But like, there's shots in There Will Be Blood that are the antithesis of what a modern movie looks like. And that's fair. And then that works better because, like, even like even a couple years later after. Um, Assassination of Jesse James, like, Ain't Them Bodies Saints, like, looks v- a lot like the assassination of Jesse Well, yeah, it's fair. Um, well, I guess to wrap a bow on this topic before we get back to the movie we're actually talking about, I, I think maybe the issue is is less that um, – who who directed that? Andrew Dominic. Andrew Dominic, yeah. Dominic directed um, – He's not as accomplished of a director as Paul Thomas Anderson was in terms of There Will Be Blood. Oh, sure. And so maybe some of the shots that I would have appreciated – 
otherwise, I just kind of credited to Paul Thomas Anderson. And especially now that you see what Paul, and especially I, now in retrospect, you can see fan, you can yeah, see yeah. another movie we'll talk about in the future, Phantom Thread, where Paul Thomas Anderson did his own cinematography and was like, oh, well. but you can. And that's the thing. But I would argue that there's a d- direct line from There Will Be Blood to Phantom Thread, where you can see they don't look the same at all. The camera doesn't move the same. It's not doing the That's same fair. things. Yeah, yeah. The camera is not telling the same kind of story. You know what I mean? It's still definitely telling a story. Telling, well, it's the thing. It's telling a story, but Paul Thomas Anderson is telling a more um, abstract story in Phantom Thread World. There will be blood. He needs Robert Elswit to convey the sheer... To ground it. ...natural power of Daniel Plainview. Yeah. Um, but to get back to this movie, um, I didn't... I understand everything you're saying. I didn't really. It didn't really jive with me. Um, I think of, it's fun. I don't think it's great. I think it's worth it. Except for I think it's worth a watch. Fun. Yeah, but when it's not being fun, I think it's so not bad. It's it's so flawed and so uneven that and, it's, it's amusing to watch. And, and there's such jarring. There, there's so, some people that seem like they're in on the joke. You know, there, there's there's Jake Gyllenhaal is kind of like leaning in earnestness, but still being very good. There's Marco Beltrami and Buck Sanders kind of. Like goofy, lighthearted score for a while. Which is, I like the score for a while, and then it then, then the score gets um, yeah then, absorbed into like the which terror. I think which I think is is a fault of, of the editing and the sound editing yeah, yeah. and all that. I because I, I, I still think it kind of carries this because it does because there there's a moment where when he does the horror beats, Beltrami one hundred percent steals the uh, Lori's theme from Halloween okay. with a done perfect. Just keep going if you want. I just oh. you, you said it's stealing something from somebody. I want to segue off of that once you're finished with your book. Yeah, no, and and so like that's kind of to me like carries over this thread of of low budget B this to it, and and like it feels like some of those people are in the joke and some of them aren't, and it creates this kind of fun jarring weird right grab bag. Um, that that should be like on the if they do, they don't do they're not gonna do a poster for this because it's not gonna come out anywhere but fun jarring grab bag is <laughs> is like a perfect blurb for something you know this podcast be worth it if they do a Blu-ray release of Velvet Buzzsaw and like that's the only thing they put a on a fun there. jarring grab bag it's it's this My and like it's this and a guy lodge like comment <laughs> um I um so one of the things I dis liked about this movie and this is not something that I always dislike about movies and maybe you can convince me that they're doing this on purpose and maybe they are doing it on purpose but it nevertheless bugged me there are some very 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 obvious allusions to actual artists in this movie that there's literally no reason other than they couldn't get the rights to use their names um, that they shouldn't have been referenced so the the Dees character as they've set it up is just almost a carbon copy of um, this outsider artist named Henry Darger, um, whose art was discovered in the exact same way, who lived in a boarding house for 30 years, and nobody knew he was creating huge murals and writing 15,000 pages of novel and autobiography to describe this world called the realms of the unreal. And his art is now hanging in... um, the museum, the American Museum of Folk Art in um, New York City. His, his work's a little lighter. No, that's what I'm saying. Pieces, so but... basically, all they've done is they've transferred like Henry Darger's way of working, and then made everything look like a Francis Bacon painting. That'd be, that'd be pretty great though if they just leaned into like, no, this is this is just Darger. But it's the same. <laughs> but like the the um, 
the narrative, like even like the biography is very similar until like they, you know, he killed his father and like all this other stuff, you know, that he was in an orphanage, that he worked as a janitor for this many years at this church, um, that he kind of, he was just kind of, people thought he was weird. Um, you know, he was a loner. All that stuff is, all that stuff is the same. Um, additionally, like Tony Collette's character, Gretchen, who I guess works at the LA Museum of Art, or, or was it an ex former employee, whatever, and then she becomes who is her client? Do we ever find out who her client is that she's working for? Uh, not that, that she's buying all this art and making all these deals for. That was a hold, also. Um, uh, her her entire character kind of has just yeah, I don't really know no arc. Um, so she mentions like a horse penis and a jeweled vagina, and those strike me as being veiled references to. Um, Damien Hurst, who famously did, like, he did a jeweled skull, like a skull encrusted with diamonds, and he did these um, cross-sections of, of animals, like a sheep and a horse and, and stuff like that. Um, and then on top of that, which is which is all fine, I guess you got to do that, and if you're making a satire or making a commentary on the art world, you're going to want to talk about Damien Hurst, because Damien Hurst makes... Millions, even when um, Billy Magazine's character is talking about that Fruit Loops thing, like Damien Hirst does these paintings um, that are just, you know, they're just dots. You know what I mean? The painting is just a dot, and he makes millions of dollars off of paintings of just dots. He makes millions of dollars off of vivisections of horses and uh, of encrusted skulls and huge statues of pregnant women and all this other stuff. But there's a weird thing that kept sticking out in my head while I was watching this, and I'm just going to assume that Dan Gilroy is a really big fan of the writer Stephen Milhauser, because there's a lot of stuff that he doesn't hear that is very Milhauser, such as the sphere where, you know, um, that I for, Milken, I think, is the artist, but he's never a part of the movie, and they just talk about him a lot. Um, there's this sphere that Jake Gyllenhaal calls groundbreaking, at one point, but like no one ever cares about it again except for Tony Collette. And you could put your arm in it and you'll get like different sensations in your arm. So Stephen Milhauser in the like early 2000s wrote this, sto- this short story called The Wizard of West Orange where it's about Thomas Edison. Um, about this guy that's working with Thomas Edison who's developing a box that you can stick your arm in and will give you all these weird sensations. You know what I mean? It will make you feel like – and then uh, – the story ends where like it's a whole body thing and you can go to all these different places. Additionally, in the same short story collection called Dangerous Laughter, there's a uh, short story called A Precursor to Cinema about a painter whose paintings people think are coming to life. Like as they're looking at them, like the painting seems to move. You know, there's a painting of waves and the what waves. Was that, what seems was that to move. written? Um, I don't know exactly when the short story was written, but the collection came out in the early 2000s. Oh, because that just sounds like Hellbound. The box one just sounds like Hellbound Heart. Me. What's that? Who's that? The Clive Barker. Oh, okay. Um, it might, and that might be too. You know what I mean? So there's all these... There's all Which these, is like the entire basis for like the Hellraiser. Right. Theory that you, there's all these tiny thefts. And I'm, I think the movie, if it's making the comment that like this is what art is, I'm totally cool with it. I'm totally cool with that because that's a, like a legitimate case to be made um, about art. But if you're not making that, the story just feels really unoriginal and kind of pasted together with all these different tropes and ideas that a lot of other people have had. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Dan Gilroy has never heard of any of that stuff. I tend to think, though, that I'm, I'm not wrong and that he's a really big Stephen Milhauser fan, which would be great. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> 
You should, I mean, we didn't even talk about Rene Russo's death. Let's, I mean, let's just go, let's end it with talking about, like, her head getting chopped. Is that, are we uh, supposed to assume? Like, she doesn't have any of that art anymore because she made some money off of it. She's cursed, and then the buzzsaw tattoo on the back of well, her no, neck I, chopped her head off. The way I got that was the the joke was she still she tried to get rid of because you know the the painting was able to inhabit other artwork and she no. thought she had got rid of all the artwork so it's like a clever like Haha, it's funny because she actually still has artwork on her. She body. should have shaved her skin off her neck. <laughs> she should have done a a nice little saw two thing. Yeah, there you go. And opened up a safe. Um, but again, I, if I'm going to say to see it, I'm going to say see it just for Jake Gyllenhaal because he's fucking great. And yeah, there's, and there's other people that kind of like do fun stuff in it. Tony Collette, who doesn't have a lot to work with, also leans into how dumb this movie is, like, yeah. like the premise of it is. And it's good from the, the point of there, there's some good work being done mixed with some really not good work. But it is nice to know that Tony Collette's character was able to get that sphere. Would usually cost an arm and a leg at a discount. <laughs> we will be uh, right back with our list. Few films I would call outright perfect in ways that I don't find any flaws in them. There's only there's a couple on this list. Notably, this is one of them. Hmm. And this was probably the first film I'd seen where, even though it didn't fully grab me, there was nothing I could look at and criticize. There was nothing I could see that did not in some way serve the greater purpose of the narrative being told. And in a feature debut, surprisingly. Hmm. Sidney Lumet's 1957 adaptation of the teleplay by Reginald Rose from 1954, 12 Angry Men. Watch them and pray, for someday you may become one of them. 12 men with the smell of violent death in their nostrils. What's the matter with you guys? You're letting them slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I don't really know if this is a movie for our listeners that necessitates a plot description. A Puerto Rican youth on trial for the murder of his father is um, left to the hands of 12 white men. <laughs> not, in the, not, not in the Showtime remake, though. They, 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 uh, they give it. They, they, they throw some diversity is, in there. Is it all men or is it do they throw uh, women? They do women there, is, there is a woman in the remake. I, read been, that, I didn't now, rewatch the remake. I read that when they but, produce it, now they just call it 12 Angry Jurors. Which doesn't have the same kind of. I can't remember. It has a it has a so there's a, a missing aspect of component of that because not just about jurors. It's I re- about I did men's really movie. enjoy the the actual remake of it, but I just did not rewatch it. I can't remember. I'll mm. get back to that. I'll throw it on Twitter. Um, but these twelve jurors, unnamed mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film, uh, vote on their this man's fate. One juror played masterfully by the best Fonda. Yeah, well, we can argue about this. Uh, well, next to the joy that is constantly stoned Peter Fonda, Henry Fonda, <laughs> um, convinces, tries to convince the rest of the group that this man is not guilty, um, not necessarily because he's innocent, but because of reasonable doubt. Which Sona Sotomayor has been known to say, do not ever 
do anything they're doing in this because this is not what you'd be allowed to do and cause a mistrial. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll give some film levity. Uh, I saw this film originally in middle school. Me too. Yeah. It was required. Yeah. I've seen it. Actually, the only times I've ever seen it are in classes. And I've seen it in like three or four classes. Are you considering this a class? This this, this is the master class. Podcast? Yeah, it's a cl- fucking class. I, I think we have a we're gonna have a channel four like sitcom soon on this. Ideally. Yeah. Sitcom, by the way. Not not <laughs> situational comedy. Situational comedy, yeah. That's a documentary on and variety piece on film. Um but this movie was just stunning in in every way. It um It's just a powerful film. Like Lee J. Cobb's performance is just perfect. Um, I believe he's then played by George C. Scott in the remake, who's also the the television. Also really great. Uh, I'd actually seen the remake before I saw this. Mm -hmm. Um, But this movie has so much heart to it in the fact that. Sidney Lumet, and, you know, he was already had been a, a you know, Tony Award winning uh, director at this point. I think he had won the Tony for, if I'm correct, The Odd Couple, I would want to say. I might be incorrect about that. Um, I don't know. But the fact that he uh, has film historian David, David, David Thomason says um, his sensitivity to actors and to the rhythms of the city have made him America's longest living descendant of 1950s neorealistic tradition. And this movie is so, and this is probably one of my first actual introductions to something that would be approaching neorealism. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know when the foreman, you know, that Martin Balsam's character is, is kind of initially going over the rules of like what they're going to be doing and voting. Mm-hmm. There is hesitations and pauses and like he's stumbling over his words there's no cleanliness to it that you see no. in the film. There's, there's, there's no very telegraphed marks of humanization, of humanization. He is stumbling over what he's saying because a person in this position who's just, you know, a regular football coach would be stumbling over saying these things. Um, like that was shocking to me because it, it felt it was my first introduction to a movie that, that, presented people like people that presented the drama that presented everything all the tension in just people in very incredibly well-defined maybe not all 12 people are incredibly well-defined but you know people with their own separate quiet arcs mm-hmm. um and that lume allows the film in many ways to linger over a shot um like when the judge, that, that Ruby Bond character, is discussing the rules and what they're going to vote on and, and, you know, putting in the gravity with one of those first words of, you know, death penalties mandatory here. And only, you know, setting, doing an exposition machine, but that shot is so, takes such long takes, you know, kind of floating over your cast of characters that it's just so enticing and so, so draws you in. And Well, then that whole scene ends with, like, that lingering shot on... The kid. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and it's an, and it's a it's a it's a strange shot. It's not it's not like a just a straight on shot. It's kind of from above, and 
you know, it's oddly lit and they're really well, the accentuating scene, his like, eyes. Floats and... weirdly, you know. Yeah. It's 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 a very until it gets into that you know that box episode sort of um, take in the jurors' room. It, it's very effervescent in that kind of that that camera floats and is in a really kind of interesting odd position. Mm. Um, but there's so many just brilliant choices in this. Uh, you know, during I can't remember what juror number it is. Um, I watched this earlier in the week. The the juror kind of hesitates to say guilty, and during the next vote is when he finally changes to not guilty. Like there's these nice little quiet moments of, of hesitation in each character's motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's those violent explosions, obviously. Um, like like the the racist basically. Uh, Ed Bigley's that... Junior's dad. <laughs> no, we're not even gonna call him Ed Bigley. We're just no. gonna call him Ed Bigley Junior's dad. <laughs> You know, has has that explosion, um, like those those kind of feel like a film, but they're done with such earnestness. And this movie's so incredibly earnest and so incredibly natural that for not for relying so solely on its performances, there's so much other work being done behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. That Sidney Lumet is making such clever choices, and I'm not a big Lumet fan. I hate Network. I hate Dog Day Afternoon. I think. The next really amazing movie he made after this for me, well, I enjoy, I think Failsafe might have been after this. I really like Failsafe, but mm-hmm. um, for the longest time he did nothing I liked until Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which I fucking love. Mm-hmm. And not just because of the opening 10 minutes, which are also good. Um, <laughs> but there's so much work being done that you don't see until you pay attention to it. You're yeah. just drawn in by the story. You're, you're drawn in by the performances you you notice the performances you notice henry fonda and cobb doing this work and, and jack klugman who's always fun to watch and everybody you know every single one of these jurors is doing incredible work and you notice that but it's not until later that you notice the small little things that drew you in beyond the writing and beyond the acting you notice that the fact that you know reading off the 12 silent votes, um, that's just one shot. And that, you know, it's the it's the 10th the vote, not the very last vote, as you would be bound to believe yeah. in, is the one that says not guilty. You know, it's, it's those things that, that just burrow into the fact that Lumet was such a master director that he bore this just perfect film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, those choices are really clever in the sense that he doesn't, you can't go anywhere, you know what I mean? So he's got to create... And he can't, he can't be staging fights. He can't be staging fist fights every 10 seconds. Like, most of this, it's 1957, you know, and the play was written, you know, um, or teleplay was 1954. So there's a protocol for how this is going to work, and it's mostly going to take place at a table. So you need to be able to create drama in showing us E.J. Marsh, e. Marshall's face. You know what I mean? You're going to need to create drama by showing us Jack Klugman's face. You're going to need to create a kind of um, tension that you didn't even really know was there. But, you know, you realize after the fact, or as the play's going, or as the movie's going on, that um, Jack Warden as juror number seven is probably in. He's annoying the fuck out of you while you're watching him. And he's probably annoying the fuck out of the people in that room. 
You know what I mean? And all of the things that are happening are heightened. The tension of those moments are heightened because this motherfucker won't shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? And he's picking, like, so Jack Klugman's character is getting, you know, abused, um, you know, once removed by juror number 10. You know, because you know these, how these people are and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then this other guy is abusing him because he's an Orioles fan instead of a Yankees fan. Um, and I think one of the things I really like about this movie is that he just, Lumet just kind of stacks these tensions on top of each other until these moments where Lee J. Cobb just explodes. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how it works. And he's kind of sucking in all these tensions and then he's just letting them out all simultaneously. Um, and he, Lee J. Cobb is fucking great. I think he's amazing in this movie. Um, was not nominated. Uh, of course. I mean, it's still the Oscars, so they're still not ever going to be. Was, this was a really <laughs> crazy solid. There was three amazing movies up for picture. Um, not a big Peyton place. Sayonara is good. But, uh, but you have Witness for the Prosecution and 12 Angry Men, which I think are superior films to the winner, which also still shows up on a pivotal film list. Witness for a Prosecution doesn't because I saw it too late, mm-hmm. um, which is Bridger and the River Kwai. So. Yeah. Those three movies. Well, any yeah, one is, of those, any one of those three can win. This is and not Bridge Over the River Kwai. Um, Bridge on the River Kwai. Bridge, Bridge on the River. I used, I did that all the time. Don't worry. I have a, I have, oh, I have a confession though, Mario. I don't think Henry Fonda is great in this, and I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. But he strikes me as a kind of angel. You know, he's wearing a white suit. Um, he makes a kind of he has this really even temper through the whole thing while everyone else is getting really worked up um, there's like a vaguely angelic quality to him that like I've never been able to kind of get behind as as a performance I mean there's other performances that I can't really get behind because they seem really like Ed Begley's performance is good but it's also very it seems very stagey you know what mm-hmm. I mean it seems of a, like an angry old man reading lines Something about Henry Fonda's performance, though, maybe because I'm such a fan of the Lee J. Cobb performance, like his counterpoint performance, I'm not as big a fan of. But I just don't. I it doesn't. I don't buy it. You know what I mean? It doesn't jive with me. Um, I agree to a point, in the sense that I think this performance is great, but I think his character has easily the least amount of dimensionality. Because it serves the point of the story. Right. Okay. Juror number eight doesn't need to do anything. We don't need to see an emotional arc because he's there. He's where this movie needs to go. Um, And I think in the same way, you'd say, I think Joseph Sweeney's really good in this too. Has, you know, that that kind of quiet senior Mm, looking at mm, the eyeglasses. I think he is too, yeah. Um, But he doesn't have a tremendous arc either because he's the one who's kind of like the softest in connection to it. And I think that's what it is. But I think Henry Fonda is so committed to this even keel, but still very kind of human performance that it doesn't need the kind of crashes or dimensionality um, that, you know, Cobb or uh, Bagley's performance would need, or even um, uh, George Voskovic's that kind of has that kind of like big moments of reacting to the bigotry. Um, He doesn't need that, but he still needs to present as a person because everyone around him 
has so much depth and so much of an arc. Mm-hmm. And so he's still, he doesn't have an arc in this. He's just, he's where he needs to be and he needs to convince everyone to get there. And, but he still does it while being a person. That's why I love his performance in this. Yeah, that's he's a good a, point. he's a human being. Um, yeah, I mean, and because he kind of comes in, we meet them. And he is an angel. Because, like, it, it is in a sense of, like, you know, this, this is the right thing to do. I mean, it doesn't matter if the kid's guilty. All that matters is the fact that the evidence presented doesn't convict him. Right, and I think my I think a, a um a point of the movie that I have a little trouble with, just from a narrative perspective, is, is that, that we don't find out what happens in the baseball game we, after yeah, it comes we back. Well, it got probably got rained out. It got rained out, but what happens? They does did, does they he get did put the cover? Does on he field. get to the game? Why does Morden get to that? game? Why does he want to get to the game so badly? Is he just a huge fan, or is he betting? Because he seems like a betting. It could be a betting guy. I mean, this is this is what a year after the Miracle Mets is going to be bidding. Maybe it's a Mets Yankees game. Mets didn't exist yet. Oh, wait, what year is Miracle Mets? Sixty. Well, they. they I think well, they came was, in. It's not fifty. Sixty-two was their first season. Oh, and then sixty-nine <laughs> was the Miracle. Just, was the first year they won the World he's Series. He's thinking. He's just like thinking about the Miracle Mets happening soon. He's like, oh, they're gonna. It's gonna be a Mets versus. One day there's gonna be another. Do- were the Dodgers still? The Do- I do not know a lot about this. You know what? Part. I don't know if the Dodgers. I don't know if the Dodgers had moved. to Maybe it's a Dodgers LA versus yet. Yankees game. And I don't For know if some the, reason an AL team's playing an NL team in nineteen. When did the Giants move to San Francisco? Oh man, why you're asking me baseball history questions? After I just talked about how the Miracle Met season was in 1956. We're so good at trivia. We should know all these answers. My Um, category is not sports. That's why I have a friend whose category is sports and like a bunch of other categories. Um, So my question would be, so you saw this in middle school. What was your impression of it in middle school? No, it, it was the fact that a movie... That isn't doing. I mean, I've always been appreciative of, of box. That's what's called the box. I always call it the box episode. The, that might not be the the black box kind of the the episode, the contained episodes. Yeah, it, yeah. It's there's a TV trope. There is name a TV. For tro- it, I, I, I forget I don't, what it is. Yeah, the yeah. box episode works fine. I call it six characters in search of an exit. You know what? It's the okay. fuck you episode. That's what it's called. That's what <laughs> it's, it's, it's called the budget says we're fine <laughs> episode. Um, but. You know, I, I've always been a fan of those. I've always, I've always liked those. But at the same time, it was more an experience of it being so natural, but also looking, being in the presence of a bunch of other people. Yeah, like a bunch of thirteen or fourteen year olds who all they can think about is their balls and tits and all that, um, and being so invested in a bunch of people who, at that point, were mostly dead. Jack Klugman was still alive. R.I.P. Um, I love Jack Klugman. That this Twilight Zone episode, I can't remember what it's called, but that Twilight Zone episode is one of the best with the Reeves, the, the pool player. Um, watching all of them just be so utterly invested in it. You know, people who, who, who I knew weren't um, a game of pool. Is that episode 1961? Great episode. Um, <laughs> so invested in, in this, you know. Right. Just like was like this is an experience. Well, I think I had the same experience. I think in the sense that everyone kind of knew. I forget which class we watched it for. It wasn't that film as literature class, but when physical ed, yeah, it was it was sex ed. <laughs> it was your uh, Zumba class. <laughs> we didn't have Zumba back then, um, but I think everybody knew they were watching something exceptional. Not guilty from a from a quality <laughs> from a quality standpoint. Um, 
which I don't think you get a lot. I mean, we got we in that film was literature class. We got it with like something like Raging Bull, where everyone was just like, whole, it was most of the, for most well, of it was, a, it was that was first. also a college class, though. No, that was high school. Oh, that that class. So class. we were like, but these people, these were people who were going to appreciate films. But that's but there are also people that hadn't seen that movie before. So when they were watching it, they're just like, holy fucking shit! You know what I mean? And he's going to beat her up, and we're going to watch it in school. He's beating her up. I had the same experience with a movie that barely missed my list, and I probably would have if I rewatched it before I made my list, and that's Mississippi Burning. Mm. Another movie that kind of like everyone was super invested in. Right. I, I, I think that's maybe We're going to talk about another one of those movies on like much, much later. I think that might be more a fact of the fact that movie should have won actor and supporting actor. Right. Um, poor Defoe, man. Yeah. Poor Defoe. That's <laughs> we'll title of the episode, Poor Defoe, even though he's got no... We don't talk about him at all in this episode. We just did. Oh, we talked about <laughs> two movies by him in this episode, so... Have you ever met a person who no, I, I'm going to I'm just no I haven't met any other people <laughs> who has anything to say bad about this film no and additionally my wife is a big Henry Fonda fan like she loves Henry Fonda and she you know I had Wait, the DVD. So, so luckily he's dead so you don't have to luckily like, you know, know. Issues. I had she knows Peter Fonda's around right? knock on wood um I had the DVD like I got the DVD from the library um even though I think it might have been available on Hoopla, but I got the DVD from the library. The fuck is Hoopla? It's like the library, like digital loan site. Wait, isn't that? I thought that was a. Uh... There's another one called Hoopla. Oh my god, libraries consolidate. Get it together, fucking this is, libraries. This is why library science is not going to exist. I fucking hate libraries. digital curation. Digital um, curation, guys. Create, you know, she, a, create she, a UI. She saw it and she was like, "Oh, who's got Twelve Angry Men on their list?" And I was like, "Well, Mario." And she's like, "Oh, I like Henry Fonda." You know what I mean? So like, I thought she was going to be like, I'm leaving you. <laughs> like, Did you quit that podcast yet with Mario? No. <laughs> strike 100. <laughs> that's, that's strike 25. Um, and when we get to number one, she's going to be gone when I get home. Um, I, and that's, I think, to your point, no one that's seen this movie is like, that's a bad movie. You know what I mean? Because even though it's not doing a lot... The script is really compelling. But the performances are really so compelling. Much that's the thing. Without having to do anything. Well, and so that's that's the perfect gold star point in the sense that it's doing all these things while you're watching it, and you're just kind of with each new interesting thing that it does, you get more and more invested in the outcome. And you have to assume that he's going to at some point recognize, you know, not guilty. But how that comes about is really um the true beauty of this movie, you know what I mean? And why he feels the way he feels. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's interesting too. Cause like when you look at that, I mean, when you, it's, it's, it's really fun to compare this with the 97 remake. Cause the 90, I mean, the 97 remake, I really enjoy still, mm-hmm. but it's flawed for sure. Not but George C. Scott as journey number three though. No, that's, um, that's an amazing idea. No, I, it's great as it, um, but, it is only men, by the way. Okay. Um, but it's William Friedkin who directed that Ooh, one. It's good. It's yeah. it's worth checking out. I should. I will have to see it. Um, but there is like some of there is there is roughness to it. There's 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 lulls, and there's a lot of moments where he isn't he doesn't really contain performances. Um, like there's a couple spots where like William Peterson and Edward James almost kind of like go a little crazy. Somehow, well, Peterson and Edward James almost. Yeah. 
Somehow Tony Danza's not terrible. As who? Jerry number six? He's uh, seven. Yeah. No, that's that's got to be terrible. He's he's the one that, yeah. How is that not terrible? Is he yeah. wearing a fedora? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but it's still really good. It's just. So who plays Jerry number eight? Uh, Lemon. He's, he's fucking amazing. Oh, well, Jack that's, Lemon. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Um, but you see how that's really, that's a really excellent film still, Mm -hmm. but you see how much work, and I don't know if that's work or just like pure natural unbridled talent, which that maybe I don't see in network. Maybe I don't see in dog day afternoon. I fucking see it in before the devil knows you're dead. Cause that movie is amazing. It's there in dog day afternoon. Yeah. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not an Al Pacino guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I don't think Al Pacino maybe not, not even show up on my list. He, there might actually, Al Pacino, I really dislike Al Pacino. Well, we're gonna have to have a separate conversation um, about like some besides of these Jack and Jill. Movies I love Jack and Jill. On Jack and Jill is number number three on my like on my pivotal film list. We haven't talked about it in a long we're time. We're not gonna comment on Jack and Jill. No, we're not gonna comment on Jack yeah. and Jill. We're not gonna comment on Benny and June either. Um, See in that? No, but it's another man and woman movie. Um, there's no Godfather on our list. No, like Earth to everyone. There's no Godfather on any of our no lists. Godfather Part Two. No Godfather Part Two. Or part three. Or Oh no, there's Godfather part. Three. The Godfather and the Furious Hobbs and Shaw is not on our list. No. Godfather and the Furious presents Hobbs <laughs> and Shaw. Um But no, there's just It's just masterful. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's, movie. It is what everything should aspire to, to be in terms of directing actors. Mm-hmm. I also should have won more Oscars, but whatever. That's the theme of the episode. Oh, well, we're going to talk about the Oscars at the end of Tom's number 75, which is coming right up. Welcome back. My number 75 is Sideways, uh, released in 2004, directed by Alexander Payne. Wait, that's why we drank the wine. That's why we drank I thought it was because Henry Fonda's whining all throughout 12 Angry Men about it. I'm going to be honest not with being you, not guilty. Mario, I know you said that that OEC, OED, OEC, OEC beer is Yeah, good, you know me. Good. This, I think this beer is delicious. I think it's good. I'm really looking forward to the last one that's in the fr- <laughs> that's in the fridge. I think it's really good. It just is. There is a certain sort of subtlety that it I has. Think it's very subtle. No, no, that that it has that I taste the subtlety, and it's usually a presentation before the storm that OEC does well, with like a sour. I mean, or a to lead ale. us to lead us into the into the conversation about sideways. It's no fucking Merlot. <laughs> the um, the side of the bottle says. Pear, grape, and citrus notes fill this ode to summer, fermented with lager and champagne yeast. It's a crisp beer with a snappy spritz of fresh picked grape. And that's where we are in this movie, Mario. We're in wine country. Paul Giamatti, as Miles Raymond, has taken his friend, his freshman roommate from college, Jack, into wine country for a... Thomas Hayden Church has overdue returned the form. Right. Um, Wings, man. 
We talked about wings before. Well, I read when I was He's doing some, I was doing some research on this movie. I guess he had kind of convinced himself that he wasn't going to act again, and he was just going to live his life doing voiceovers and and um, you know cartoons and things like that. Um, and he was Lil Mather, one was. of the Lil. best characters. One of the great, one of the great, one of the great TV characters. characters yeah. Like people talk about their taxis and their John three sixteens. But no, seriously, they talk about Taxi and they talk about Kramer, Kramer, and oh, yeah, piece of shit. Phoebe, that good show. Niles. Friends is better than Seinfeld. No, it isn't. Yes, no, it, it is. isn't. Frasier is better than both. Frasier is better than both. Yeah, but Lil Mather is on the the echelon of that. Yeah, and this was his overdue return. Yes, um, and they was inside. They was in Spider Man Three. They the intention is to. Drink a lot of good wine, eat a lot of good f- food, play some golf, and descend Jack out in style as he's getting married the week later. While they are in wine country, they meet Maya, played by Virginia Madsen, and Stephanie, played by Sandra O. Oh. My introduction to Sandra O. Oh. Me too. Well, it might have been the worst my introduction in- to Sandra O. Oh. It might have been. I don't know. I don't really feel like it's because I don't give a shit. But, um, that's your Golden Globe 2019. Hilarity co-host. ensues, Mario, in that Jack begins a relationship with Stephanie. Miles eventually begins a relationship with Maya. The knowledge of Jack's impending marriage ruins his relationship with Stephanie, which also ruins Jack's relationship or Miles' relationship with Maya. Miles' novel is not getting published. He is still depressed about his divorce from Vicky. Especially finding out that she's remarried. She's remarried and she's going to the wedding. Um, And the really promising fun week turns into kind of a shit show when Miles has to steal back Jack's wallet from the house of a married woman that he was fucking when... Her husband caught them, and he had to run back to their hotel naked, and then the married woman's husband chases them in their car naked down the street. Why is this movie in my top 75? You tell me what's in my pivotal film list. Um... That'd be great if I just answered. I'm just like, well, of course, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, well, Here that's right. the perfect answer. Because we've See you guys probably later. had this conversation before. Um, there is a moment in this movie that I can't get out of my head. And I've never been able to get it out of my head since I th- saw it in theaters. I don't drink wine. I don't like wine. I've been, on, I've been to Napa Valley. I've been on wine tours. I've, you know, tried some stuff. Well, this isn't um, Napa Valley. No, no, no. But like, I've been to the places that you're supposed to go. I've had some of the best wines from California do not come from fine. Napa Valley. Has, but I've had this has I, a person from the West Coast. I've had a similar ex- Napa Valley. All I'm saying is that I've had a similar experience driving through, you know, vineyards and going to these shitty, you know, staged uh, Apple wineries. Hill, Placerville and, like, wine is kind of where it is because you get a lot of the appleness in the wine. Right, fuck you. Like um, the, it's good. I've better. never liked wine. I don't like how it tastes. I don't like anything about it. But for some reason, I think, and maybe it's because I can't see the wine. I just understand what the wine represents. The scene that always sticks in my head with this movie is after the wedding. You know, it's, it's towards the end of the movie, so um, 
Miles talks to Vicky. He finds out that she's pregnant. Um, they have a, fa- a fairly successful conversation. Um, they're going to go to the reception. Everyone else is turning one way, and Miles turns the other way. He goes home. He gets a bottle of 61 Chavon Blanc that he's been saving. I think that's what it is. I can be yeah, wrong. Uh, I believe so. It is. And he goes to a hamburger joint, eats a hamburger and fries, and drinks this 40-year-old wine that he's been saving out of a styrofoam cup meant for soda. Um, there's a couple of things going on here for me. Um, one of them is that I find that this movie, the cinematography was done by Fadon Papa Michael. Is that right from a pronunciation standpoint? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I'd, that's how I'd say. It is one of the most tactile films I've ever seen. In the sense that everything seems like you can, you are experiencing it yourself. Like that you are it reaching out. It could be a out. PSVR sort of experience. Right. So you're reaching out. When Miles has that kind of breakdown after he finds out that Vicky's you know, got remarried and, you know, he grabs a bottle of wine out of the box and runs down the hill and Jack chases him into the vineyard and he, you know, finishes up, polishes off the bottle and he throws it into the, like amongst the grapes. And then he just kind of stops and is like pouring over grapes. You can almost feel those grapes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's also a couple, I mean, there's a couple of scenes where they're eating and the first diner scene after they, after Miles steals a bunch of money from his mother's house, um, you can see like the grease on their lips from their you know diner breakfast. You know what I mean? Um, there's all that's everything's very real in this movie, which I think is the opposite of how Alexander Payne generally makes movies. I'm not a big I'm not a big Alexander Payne fan, but I think he does everything right. Yeah, in this I hate fucking I movie. hate election. I do like about Schmidt, but I didn't see, and I don't like about Schmidt at all. I tolerate the Descendants. Um, no, I tolerate this. And it's I think Nebraska is a good movie. I like Nebraska a lot. Um, um, downsizing this, is downsizing. This this movie feels so lived in and so like real, like in in its emotions and, but also more importantly for me, and it's in its images. Like these are really interesting images, even though they don't seem very interesting. You know what I mean? Um, it's a, and you get a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of easy work being done in the sense that there's a lot of wide open spaces. There's all this great place to just stick a camera and shoot it and you're going to get a good thing. But the way that that like tactile feeling um, helps propel the narrative, I find really interesting and fascinating and something I, I, I wasn't seeing I, that I jumped on in 2004 when I wasn't focusing, when my whole life wasn't, movies yet i mean it was big it was on its way i mean i had gone had a bunch of different movie going experience but they all seemed kind of um in and of themselves like these is right where i kind of was like oh well movies movies music and movies are going to be my thing and then books got you know music and movies and books and this is my whole life from now on just thinking about these things um the second thing about that scene is that i think even when i was you know, so 2004, I was 22. Um, I think the thing I connected with this movie, because I had already connected with it with a couple of other movies, um, was the idea that the wine that he's drinking there represents 
something very significant to himself. And through the whole movie, Miles can't connect in the way that he wants with another person. He can't understand them. He can't understand himself around them. He can't understand the relationship between himself and that other person. But he can understand his relationship to this wine. To a to any wine. He can understand... He can, he can break it down, even when it's ridiculous, when he's smelling cheese in, in, in the wine, that Jack's just like, you know, oh, definitely strawberries, no cheese. Um, whether or not that's correct from, like, an enophile standpoint, it's correct for Miles. You know what I mean? He, mm. he fucking gets it. He doesn't get anything else in his life, but he gets the wine. And... Uh, a part of the movie which you know everyone kind of goes to this part it's why Virginia Madsen got nominated for a fucking Academy Award um, was for this part in the movie when her and Miles are sitting on the you know the patio at Stephanie's house and they're having the conversation about wine and Miles having that conversation about Pinot she's like why do you like Pinot so much it's a hard grape to grow as you know right so it's thin skin temperamental ripens early it's, you know, it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and uh, thrive even when it's neglected. No, Pinot needs constant care and attention. You know, and in fact, it can only grow in these really specific little tucked away corners of the world. And, and only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it, really. Only somebody really takes the time to understand Pino's potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. I think the inclination is to say that he doesn't recognize that he's talking about himself. But I think that he 100% recognizes that he's talking about himself. Which is why Paul Giamatti is so fucking good in this movie. He's amazing in this movie. I assumed he was going to win the Academy Award for Best Actor. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a bit. Um... Because he delivers that scene with tears in his eyes. He understands, like, this is me. This, the, the nature of this wine is my own, is my own nature. Yeah, no, it's, it is such a... And this is the thing that I love about this movie. Beyond the fact that it's just, like, a really great road trip film. And mm-hmm. I love road trip movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it follows, like, a logical consistency. Like, that scene in Solvang and all that. Like, mm, they're yeah, actually yeah. going up... And, and the tactileness enhances that, but everyone knows what they're doing in this, and everyone kind of lives that character. But Giamatti has Miles is just one of the best performances of that decade. I would mm. say easily the best performance of that year, and a year that I already consider one of the best years. Like him, Javier Bardem. You disagree with me on this? Tom Cruise in Collateral, uh, Bardem in, in See Inside. You know some of the best performances of that decade, and Paul Giamatti just kind of rises above that just because it's 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 not doing a lot it's it's not it's a complicated performance but giamatti adds right. his own personal gravity to the things not said in the screenplay well i think one so the reason that this movie is on my list um it's an odd movie i think to be on a list because it's you know i was 22 when i saw it this almost seems like a grown-up movie um but i think even then i recognized something of myself in miles's character where he is parsing through 
the tangible aspects of his existence and trying to find himself in it. And for him, it's wine. For me, it was books, music, and movies. Um, it's why I'm making it's for me why I'm doing this list. You know what I mean? I thought it was to hang out with me. Well, it's, it is. <laughs> um, but what Miles is doing in his wine tasting is what is you know what I'm doing in in this is what I do every time I get a new record. It's yeah, what every us- time I go to a movie that I assume isn't just going to be a barrel of laughs or like a, a shitty pass the time movie. You know me, what I mean? Me and you definitely, and I think a lot of our 27 or so listeners reattach ourselves to the films and that, you know, it's always a subjective piece and the wine to him is subjective, just like any other sort of consumption of media or anything you would actually anything enjoy. You're passionate about. Any, yeah. Anything you're passionate about is hundred percent subjective, but you're going the things you're most passionate about, you're going to paint yourself on them. Mm. It's going to cloud your judgment. And like, what's interesting about that is like, it's like that constant kind of like Merlot joke in that Merlot joke is the Merlot, you know, is popular, but simple and easy to understand and, and, and palpable, but still has easy to say, easy to say, but has, but still has complexities in the sense of it can do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It is a Jack of all trades sort of in, I mean, this is me painting my position because I love Merlot, but it is was perceived at the time as something like that. Um, well, apparently after this movie came out, Merlot dropped sales dropped. 2%. Yeah. But was it Pino, I think, Pino jumped up, up 16, yeah. so it was all fine. Uh, I'm sure it did not even out at all. I'm sure Merlot was sales dropping were much more significant. But um, now Pino Noir is like one of the bigger, like Pino is like one of the bigger wines too mm-hmm. now, which is funny. Um but in the sense that Merlot is, is something that can do a lot of things without such complexity and without such difficulty, you know, speaks a lot to that character. And, and, and this movie so eminently does a great job of painting your fears and inadequacies and also the things you pride yourself on across a palette of the thing you're passionate about, which you don't see often accurately realized in film or at least authentically realized right well that's kind of one of the i mean one of the notes i meant or i made when i was watching this again yeah i'm i've started this a bunch of times and we call this episode 100 percent authentic celluloid because both of our movies are about (laughs) authenticity um it's i'm not gonna tell that um it seems like it's an it's gonna be it's even when you're watching it you're like this is an easy movie to understand and it presents itself really easy. And that that scores I, that scores great. I think that scores um, great too because it presents uh, Rolf Rolf Kent. It's Rolf so Kent. floaty and like. But it also presents a kind of mystery element. It has that kind of old school sixties British oh kind okay, of like, yeah. I was like pink panthery mystery. element. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and then it kind of devolves occasionally into these really sad, you no, know, these sad piano lines while still containing. So. Eloquently, the the kind of tone of um, the the film, right? Other f- films that year did not do with their scores, um, which we'll talk about shortly. But it's one of those movies that, like, as you, I wish I had seen it sooner because I I got a lot I got a lot out of it this time, like a re like a shit ton, and not so much from an analysis standpoint, but like from an emotional standpoint. Like, there's a lot of heavy emotional stuff going on. So one of the things that I've always kind of that I remembered from this movie is that conversation that Jack has with Miles after, you know, Stephanie has broken Jack's nose. Um, 
and he goes to the hospital and then you know they go to that rib joint to eat dinner and he's like talking up that woman and jack is kind of talking about how you know you understand wine you understand books you understand movies but you don't understand my plight um and at the time in 2004 i was just kind of like well that's a weird thing to say and he says it kind of weird but when i'm watching it now i realize it's kind of like the whole it's the crux of the whole movie is that there's four people here presented that nobody really understands 100 percent what they're going through even like someone who's really given kind of short shrift from a character standpoint and stephanie um Alexander Payne is a good enough filmmaker that he gives you clues through the whole thing, through the development of every character as to what is what is happening here. So her her mother is. Um, it's almost unlike Jason Reitman. Alexander Payne knows how to write characters, or he at least Fuck knows, you, Reitman. He knows how to develop them on screen. Oh, sorry, I, I, mean? I just wanted the shit on Jason Reitman. Fine, for a second. we can. You know, it's so funny. Thank and you I, for smoking the only good thing. I have thought done. about this so much, Mario. Is that we? We went in because I have my notes. I got my notebook right here. I got I like my how, notes. I like how so much of this episode is our sides just talk about something it's else fine. from the cinema. Of this, this is era. this is what would be happening if we were at Archie or Archie Moore's right now. You guys are getting some notches. You guys are getting one hundred percent authentic pivotal film. There you go. Um, I have my notes, and we had we were planning a Jason Reitman bonus episode with talking about Tully and the front runner, and we only mentioned Tully once in our best it's so- of forgettable well not even that but the front runner collectively as a culture we were just like we don't need it we don't need this movie and Hugh Jackman's like oh god god try again guy um one day that best actor will be mine it might be it's I'm, I'm rooting for Hugh Jackman yeah, yeah yeah um not for the greatest showman too but for something else um, do do uh, do do Logan with Logan just, again just again the same movie um he he's get Nick Cave to do the score though yeah okay fine he sprinkles bits of character development in, like with the images and with attitude and with set design. And, and those and those those shots that linger two seconds too long. Yeah. And um because all the acting is so great, every piece of this performance baking something. I think the ghost is baking something tonight. That sounds great. It does. I kind of want it. It smells yeah. like a cake. Baking a cake. Yeah. It makes me want to. I have brownies that I kind of want to make now. Yeah. But anyway, we're going to get back. Yeah. I, I paint I paint my subjective nature on the brownies. <laughs> um, <laughs> and all of these things, when you watch it now, I don't know, you can maybe corroborate this. Um, there's a there's an added depth to it that I don't think you realize is there when you're watching it. It's not just a wine movie. It's a really sad movie about how you don't ever really about submitting to what life is giving you mm-hmm. and trying to hold on for as long as you can to your dreams while everyone, everything around you says, well, you can't have that. I, I have a really quick question for you before I Do make it. a point that involves me leaning dramatically into the microphone. Your opinion of this film has 22-year-old Thomas Nolan. Um, what exactly was it compared to the opinion of 35-year-old well, so Thomas this is a really, Nolan? So this is an interesting 36-year-old. 36. I'm almost 37. Oh my God. Almost 33. Um, this is a really interesting. That's a really interesting question you're, in the sense that this is a. Really, you're almost not a young voter anymore. No, I'm not a young voter. 
I don't vote. He still barely counts. I don't vote young anyway. I vote old Democrat. Um, He does. I um I felt I felt the same. I've recognized the same things in this movie back then that I do now. Um, But what depth? So the depth is different because I've thought about this is an impetus for thinking about this stuff. So I've thought about these things from the context of Miles sitting in that burger joint, drinking that wine and eating that hamburger for um, 15 years. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I've created narratives and written stories and made lists and all this other stuff based around a similar idea where I'm hunting for aspects of myself and all of the things that I love and looking for a way to define myself through those things rather than defining myself through my actions or my personality or myself, which is what Miles is trying to both avoid and and reconcile with in this movie. Um, so from the idea that this movie you know, exists in that part of the list that it does in my heart list is that, and I talked about this when we talked, when I kind of moved into this, these, this, when I started moving in this trajectory is that the dream, I think for someone like me, someone like you, um, is to have that moment where all of a sudden you recognize, holy fucking shit, insert whatever revelation you want to, I'm going to go drink a bottle of 40-year-old wine and eat a hamburger. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's the moment. And that's the moment when it all comes together for when you. When you were 22, did you realize that? Yes, 100%. Okay. I wanted it. I wanted to but drink did that you, wine and eat that hamburger. But did you understand why as much as you do now? No, but it's, that's why it's a pivotal film because it put that question in my head. How do I get there? How do I get to the bottle of wine and the hamburger? You know what I mean? And that's, I mean, and I think that's what, for me, this list is in service to that. By episode, I fully intend by episode number one to ha- have a full accounting of my existence. And I'll understand everything about the nature of reality and my place in it. And then you'll meet Rachel Wise on some sort of weird bubble world and be like, I'm ready and explode in light. Yeah. Mario. We'll also talk about that multiple Tom, times, multiple times. much later. Um, Here's my thought, and I just want to bring it to a point. Um, when I saw this movie in 2004, I knew it was a solid road trip film, and it felt fun, and it felt very warm and safe in the sense of it's very California-based, and I'm from near the region in which this movie takes place. So uh-huh. it felt local. It felt homey. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of, I think, the reviews kind of at the time kind of painted it has this kind of dark comedy with a lot of light kind of road trip elements but to me i have not i only saw this film again in about 2007 and haven't watched it in 11 years since and it resonated so much more with me now Uh um, in terms of what it's doing and in terms of of the affect i feel in comparison especially with miles and some sort of like the anew with jack as well and it made me have this revelation with this film and made me realize that if I was, if I had seen, rewatched, maybe I should have rewatched all the movies that could have potentially made my pivotal film. I just didn't want to watch like 500 movies um, before making the list that it would have, this movie would have shown up much further on my list. Mm-hmm. And why? Because like wine, 
it matures with age. Put on my notes. In the sense that you see this, I saw this younger, and I didn't relate to the depth of feeling that Miles feels. I was like, oh, he's sad because his ex-wife is having a child and is mm-hmm. remarried and is the current girl who is so afraid to speak to is, you know, upset with him for very valid reasons. Mm-hmm. But it's just an intellectual understanding of the story. And you don't really... And I knew back then that, that GMI's performance was the best of the year. It's fan. Uh, it's, um, uh, we'll talk about it's that. Just, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. get there. We'll get there. We're going to do a Very shortly. Very we'll, shortly. We'll get into our nice little bonus, like, fourth segment. Um, and re-watching this, I realized the depth in which he feels. Having, oh, it's having, having felt, especially in relation to, like, the similar topic the same sort of emotions and the fact that like something you prize and something you hold so valid to yourself, you're just like, fuck it. I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do it now. Cause what's it fucking matter. Uh-huh. And like, I didn't get that back then and watch this now. I'm like, Oh yeah, of course. Like if it was some sort of, I don't know, man, prized chocolate, I guess for me, I don't, I don't know what, what I would pull the prize beer, a prized beer, actually a prized beer. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? Something similar happened. I was aging a bottle of, I can't remember its name right now. It's a really great Vermont beer. Hill Farmstead. Two years. Something happened. Which in the moment, in retrospect, isn't, 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 isn't so much... Of an impact in my life, which isn't for miles too. It's just, it's just he he lives things so vicariously in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I fucking got home and I didn't have anything to drink, and I was like, I'm gonna drink this because I was like kind of buzzed already, and I popped it open and drank it. Just no reason. Just I was watching something on Netflix and mm-hmm. like, but you you feel so visceral, and then you feel like, oh, I can't do that again, and like that is your turn, and like it was a turn, for, and it's a turn for him. It's the turn, yeah, yeah. Um, or it's, just, it's in response to the turn. I, I don't think so. I think that is the turn. Well, I, I think mean, you could argue that you could argue that the turn is literally is putting it. You could argue that the turn is literally it. the turn when everyone else is turning one way and he literally turns his car in the opposite direction. But I think that's a, a resignation, and I didn't get so much of the resignation the first time I saw it. Whereas that is a resignation. He just doesn't give a shit. He's, See, I don't know if it's a resignation. I actually think it's an active shedding shedding of old values where what is so special about because he said he's saving it for a special occasion and she's saying opening that bottle is a special occasion but why why do i say that i say that because i think if he had shed that the first thing he would have done is go see maya but he couldn't because he went right after the wedding so he was still wearing his tuxedo when he was eating he would have went home changed really quickly and gone see Maya. I, I I think there would have been much more of a so determination. So I think he needed to drink that wine. He needed to put that. He needed to put this aspect of himself behind him, and he needed to. So what I'm saying is that he's using the wine, in his love of wine, as a way to connect with the outside world. And he has found when he's talking to Victoria, and he kind of he navigates it, and it all kind of goes well, and he's. He actually is happy for her. He kind of realized that I don't need 
I can connect with the outside world through with Maya. You know what I mean? Like I'm I've moved past this kind of I've broken down this barrier. But do you think and this is my 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 issue with that statement is do you think you would need first to shed the old you before moving on? Like sure. like this oh, weird yeah. little talisman yeah. to the old you? Absolutely. Hmm, maybe Maybe that's what the subjective nature of film is great here is like I would it wouldn't matter that that thing wouldn't matter. It would lose its value. It would just be a good bottle, a really expensive, great bottle of wine that once held value to me. But that's but like the the new value would be there. But it does lose its value. He's drinking it out of a styrofoam cup. But I think he's drinking out of a styrofoam cup because of his resignation that nothing matters. And it's no. not until kind of this regret because like I, I think there's like a carry of regret and kind of like at the end of the movie. No carry of regret after he does that. Oh, I don't think so at all. He seems perfectly happy. He has that. I mean, the, so the, the the moment of that scene. So I can break that scene down in like th- to its moments. The moment of that scene is where he puts he he you know he eats the hamburger. He takes a sip. There's nothing left. He pours himself a cup and he's looking around with those Paul Giamatti eyes, like looking around. He takes another sip and he he takes a breath. You know what I mean? And he's like he kind of shakes his head a little bit. He's got a little bit of a smile on his face, and the next time we see him, he's driving back up to see to see Maya. So but I think like it's, it's that first it's sip. It's over now. It's a first, relief. I think that it's first, a relief. But I think that first sip is kind of like, what am I doing? And that second sip is like, I can make something of this. This is a turn. This is my turn. We're gonna have to do a, a frame by frame shot analysis of that. That'll be how we keep this podcast going until we're both dead. We're not gonna show it. We're just gonna describe. <laughs> Describe nope. what we're we'll, seeing. We'll put it on our Instagram. We'll put it, yeah, no, we'll put it on our YouTube channel that we haven't invented yet. Yeah. Um, um, but I think we should... I, so we, we both love this movie. In the spirit of the fact that we both love this movie, we should talk about... Something that's really bit. precedent... Or precedent? What's the term I'm looking for? The, prescient. The prescient in the moment. Uh, the Academy Awards. And that is uh, the travesty... That was the I'm not gonna go so far as to 77th say it was, Academy Award. It was a travesty from a nomination standpoint. I'm not 100% willing to say it was a travesty from a winning standpoint, except for a couple of awards. Okay. Well, we'll, take, I, a, we'll take a quick break, and then we will discuss that. All right. I'll get a high life. Yeah. All right. So um, we just wanted to quickly touch on, because we have a, a lot of... Um, we have a bunch of 2004 movies on our, the, on our list. I think maybe the most crossover for us. You have you have three. I have three. And I have three as mm-hmm. well. Um, none of them shared, I don't think, at all. No, I don't think so. Yeah, so six different 2004 films. Um, obviously, 2017 is your big year, and 2006 is my big year. But 2004 is the year where we see a lot of collective well, the cl- I have some years that have clusters and stuff on it but 2004 is definitely one of the ones that has you know a, a bunch um, 2004 is definitely a pivotal year interestingly enough though I think in the reason we're kind of having this kind of close out discussion is that um, the movies that we've chosen on our list are actually kind of weirdly underrepresented from a, a, a winning and a nomination standpoint, I would I would definitely say out sideways being the most represented. Well, of so those it got features. sideways got five nominations. Five nominations got a best picture. It won an Oscar. Alexander Payne won for best screen, adapted screenplay. Adapted, sorry, adapted. Um, but original screenplay went to Eternal Sunshine, which is which is good because I mean it's another movie time. Um, but Paul Giamatti doesn't show up here <laughs> at all, which is a I mean you get Thomas but who Church does, who does show up in Best Actor. Who the, does show up? Well, let's uh, let's start with Clint Eastwood. 
Let's, no, we'll save. We're going to save Million Dollar Baby for just the, the finale of this. Leonardo DiCaprio and Aviator? Fine. fine. Yeah. That's fine. Johnny Depp and Finding Neverland? Is Conversely, it, not fine. Not fine at all. Not terrible. Not at all a good nominee. He's coming off of post Pirates of the Caribbean getting nominated. Yeah, this is when. This they is Johnny just, Depp Renaissance like, era. Somehow they feel like they have to justify a, that deserving nomination, I'd say, as Sparrow. Sparrow. It's an iconic character now, so. Um, but they, they feel like they're going to, like. This comes, you know, he gets a Finding Neverland nomination. I believe two years later, he gets a Sweeney Todd nomination, which is actually more deserved than his. But still not deserved. No. Yeah. But this is this is just a bomb of the bear. This is basically a public enemies sort of performance. This is terrible. Um, but, Don I mean, Cheadle. It was, also got, but the Finding Neverland also got a Best God, Picture nomination. Seven, seven, the second it's most travesty. nominated film um, yeah. behind Aviator. Uh, Don Cheadle gets nominated. Don Cheadle is is. He's fine. Hotel Rwanda. Hotel Rwanda is the most movie movie I've ever seen. In the sense of, I saw it. I was like, that's sad. Oh, that's that's unfortunate. Especially that car driving Mm -hmm. scene on the bodies. But it hits all those notes of a movie where you just you should feel something so much. Is the definitive mid two thousands. It reminded me kind of in the sense of there was a a film that came out a few years ago. I don't remember the name of it. a listener wants to say, I can look it up, but I'm not going to. It's an Owen Wilson, Lake Bell, and Pierce Brosnan kind of drama set in like, oh, Southeast yeah, yeah, Asia. Oh, yeah, 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 um, And that movie has all the same sort of emotional narrative notes as Hotel uh-huh. Rwanda. So Don Shield's doing the best work he can. I think Don Shield's he's fine in Hotel Rwanda. Um, Do you know who's not fine? Jimmy Fox. Yeah. Yeah. And the winner, Ray, the one of... The absolute worst biopics, I think, made in modern time. Taylor, I, Taylor Hackford lives up to his name. Uh, yeah. If you get it. I he's, think, he's a real Harrison Ford guy. I think this movie is terrible. Yeah. He's a hack. No, <laughs> we, get, yeah, we get it. Um, although I did like Proof of Life. Um, yeah, that, that's, Ray what, is a, that's, that's a movie that... Ray, I, how would somebody have an opinion on that movie? Right, Proof of Life is not a good movie. The only person that's like going to have it. an opinion on that movie is Meg Ryan. You know why Russell like, Crowe so ate his opinion on David Caruso, on it. I'm sure, likes it too. Um, you know why I like Oh, no, Proof David Caruso is so 100% on uh, that one fucking shit movie. Jade? No, not Jade. With Nicolas Cage? Came, the one, the, when like, Nicolas Cage bench presses a woman? <laughs> there was a movie he made like a few years later. Oh, um, okay. I can't remember it. Um... If I had an encyclopedia of knowledge of film, this podcast would be so much better. <clears throat> but Ray is a terrible movie. It is a terrible movie. You don't like super color saturation while a man's in a bath? No. I don't like any time he's on stage doing a performance, there's a weird spotlight behind him. Illuminating you know what? what's <laughs> you know what's the only him. thing that made Ray at all palpable for me is the fact that it... And Walk the Line, which I think is a slight, slight... Ter- is another terrible. Slightly better. Terrible. Inspired Walk Hard. Terrible. They both led the Walk Hard, which is... Which is fine. But it's fantastic. Just, it's also no, Walk Hard. What? I didn't think Walk Hard was very funny. Podcast... I took off my headset. <laughs> I oh. wanted to... Maybe I, my hopes were too high. Did you, have you... When's the last time you saw that movie? Oh, many, many years Re- ago. Re-fucking watched that movie. That movie is. I was not a. I was amazing. not pro. I, at that time, I was not pro Jenna Fisher branching out from her oh, Pam no. Beasley character. No, well, Blades of Glory was one hundred percent the the evidence that oh, she should not Blades do anything. Else. Other than that, like, but just pretend that Jenna Fisher's not in it and just focus on <laughs> Tim Meadows 
the guy from Justified. Well, yeah, Tim, Tim Meadows, the guy John from... John C. Riley. No, there's the, the, the dad from Justified. I don't oh, know okay. the actor's name. Guy, you're a pretty good actor. Sorry, you you need a, a leading role for me to remember your name. And John C. Riley. Just imagine those three together. I don't. It's, I saw it. It's, but just it wasn't that... just <laughs> get your Jenna Fisher oh, prejudice it. off okay, of it. Right. You've never have you ever seen that bad of a case of being cut in half before? No, because it's a pretty bad case. Okay, um, and you don't want no part of this shit. Best so best supporting actor. If you don't want to talk about Million Dollar Baby, we can't go there either. Um, no, we're going to talk about Million Dollar Baby. I was saving. But if Million you don't Dollar want to Baby. say, if you don't want to go there right now, um, I mean, I don't know who they're nominating in this. Alan Alda it was a legacy nomination. Thomas Hayden Church is good. He deserves, he deserves it. it. Jamie Foxx and Collateral is not a supporting actor nomination. Um, that's a leading role. And is a leading role so utterly and totally over. It was a lunar eclipse of an overshadow by Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise, who literally found the gristle that Michael Mann created in Collateral that like Mark Ruffalo also cut off a bit and just chewed on it while listening to Audio Slave. <laughs> you think so? That thing is very oh, I love that scene. Though. Like a stone scene, man? Oh, I love, I love Collateral. That that's, sucks. I um, wish Collateral had popped up on my list just because that would have been... So, but the interesting movie episode. from both of these, from both the supporting actor categories is Closer, is the presence of Closer. Which we could talk about right now, but we're not we're going right to for some reason. Um, Clive For Owen some is, odd reason, Clive we're not going to be talking about that yeah. movie. Clive Owen is great. We might be talking about um, who can do you like the cape? I think I, I think it's great. I, I like it. I like it a lot. I, I mean, it was I, the Kate Blanchett winning was the first time uh, actress had won for performing another Academy Award winning actress. I like it because it's time? she's not trying to do an impression of um, Catherine Hepburn as much as she's trying to kind of embody. You know, a kind of aura of Catherine Hepburn. Well, I think while still doing a Catherine Hepburny voice. I, 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 had a, I had a friend, um, Adam Holland, if you for some reason ever listened to this podcast, uh, who would do a perfect Catherine Hepburn impression back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like, it was so pitch perfect with that, too. Like, which is, it's not an impression. Like, she embodies it. But like, Catherine Hepburn yeah. in her film roles was so bigger than life at times. I mean, on the subject of Sidney Lumet, and a monster. Like, Catherine Hepburn ruined, like, a perfectly... Well, Ralph Richardson also ruined a perfectly good um, adaptation of A Long Day's Journey into Night. That you just say, Lumet directed. You could just say Catherine Hepburn ruined, and I'd be okay with that. <laughs> uh, Catherine Hepburn is on the Mount Rushmore of actresses I cannot stand for no good reason with Julia... Well, I have a good reason for the other one, but Julia Roberts... Julia Roberts also being on there because of the Ellen Burstyn. Tragedy. Well, that's we're gonna get. We'll we'll, we'll get. We'll there. have another special part. We will that. literally spend an hour for both of our episodes talking about but how Ellen Burstyn got robbed. I think. Is, I, it, we, yeah. is it time? I think before we get, but there's just there's so many weird things we've gone here, and this is such a solid year. There's so many movies that are so underrepresented on both of our lists that pop up, but even the movies that don't show up on our list that don't have any sort of recognition outside of it. A very long engagement is mm-hmm. nope, no, we're one of busy. Jean-Pierre Genou's better movies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, uh, I th- you know, The Sea Inside is one of the better foreign films alongside like Steve God of the early 2000s mm-hmm. that only just gets like a token foreign language film win. Um, but I think the reason that 2004 
makes such a good moment to like make fun of is, is looking <laughs> at this year in the sense of it was like a really banner year for them reaching out to the young folk. You know, they got Chris Rock as their host mm-hmm. who fucking shit all over the Academy Awards in the lead up to it. Saying like, you know, he made some, at the time, remarks that were fine. <laughs> but in nowadays, framed by fine, nowadays yeah. term are not fine. I'm saying I don't know a straight man who would care about the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Like the glad, you know, the glad president came out and said like, he's just making a joke. It yeah. doesn't matter. Um, and then it's sh- like just he shit on the Academy Awards. But they're like, we need a young new face. And then he was still held by, down by the system. We talked about earlier about how they <laughs> had categories presented in the audience or would bring up all the nominees. And it was just this, this such a sign. 2004, like I had really didn't like the 2003 and 2002 Oscars because I hated Chicago and I do not get Lord of the Rings. We'll talk about we'll that later. Um, we're not going to talk about Chicago anymore. Chicago's done. Well, no, we're talking about Lord of the Rings later. No, no, but we're not going to talk about Chicago. <laughs> no, no. Well, we could say one thing about Chicago and be done with it. Um, Stinks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 2004 was just this like precedent sign of them trying to be hip and be with it. And yet everything they do in that year just shows that. Well, so- like, like look, at, look at the best, the, the five best picture nominees. I think the biggest box office winner there is like, I mean, obviously they don't need to appease the masses with this. But like, but you're putting out fucking garbage like Finding Neverland and Ray and these are movies that don't even resonate with like say what you will about Bohemian Rhapsody and what you should say is that it fucking sucks with its 37 edits in like a five minute <laughs> scene and yeah it gets a best film editing nomination the movie makes gangbusters you know the, the, the Academy Award got rid of their best popular film Oscar because they kind of like created an amalgamation with their best picture yeah. but they're throwing junk like Finding Neverland and Ray in here, and these movies also didn't resonate. No, with I mean I think so. The popular culture—they're just bad. Before we boring get, movies, right? Before we get to the Million Dollar Baby discussion, I think to your point, you have um, this year. You have Spider-Man Two comes out this year. It gets one nomination in the technical category, but you have Spider-Man Two at that point being kind of universally it gets, acclaimed. It gets more than one. Is it? It gets three nominations. It, it wins. wins it wins for visual effects. It also gets the sound. Right. And somehow lose it. Sound mixing somehow goes to Ray, which even is just yeah, whatever. And I mean, I, I don't know if it, Ray doesn't deserve sound mixing, but Ray is a it shitty does, movie. I, so no, I, I'd still say Incredibles and Polar Express are better sound mixing. Literally, I actually say Aviator is also Polar better. Express. Deserves. Also, how's, how's Aviator not get nominated for sound editing based off of that crash sequence? Right. Polar Express deserves to get nothing because it's. Fucking piece of garbage. That sound in that movie's impeccable. It is awful. It is terrible. Everything well, in that movie is terrible. This is, once again, I believe, your inability to separate your opinion of a film from um, the technical proficiencies of said film. That scene where they're going across the ice, the sound in that no, is... No, it's awful. I, everything in that movie fucking sucks. It's the worst. It's the fucking worst movie. Oh, my God. I fucking hate that movie. You know mark, why? Mark, it, the, mark it. Mark it. No, no. Mark it. One of the reasons I hate Christmas is because that movie exists yeah, and I have to watch it. In 10 months. I watched it. I just co- watched no, it. Nope. In 10 months, we're talking about this. I like Polar Express a lot. You're wrong. Well, we're going to. We're going <laughs> to. I wanted to do a Christmas Why do you thing. like it? I'm not talking about now because in ten months we're going to talk about that. Because you don't like it. God, God willing, ten months coming. God willing, in ten months we're going to talk about this during a Christmas special where 
I talk about the movies I like. We're going to talk about this in the Christmas special when it's 60 degrees outside. And well, snowing sand. <laughs> um, we just got to make it through two years, Dan. But you... <laughs> You have to, um, and then the rest of our lives. Because yeah, yeah then the green, and then the green already over the edge. The Green New Deal is gonna really is gonna buck us back up again. Let's go back to the movies. Um, if you wanted Old to, Democrat, bef- before you had, you know, um, the Dark Knight. It's trying something, man. They're trying something. I'm very pro the Green New Deal. I'm just making fun of it. Um, the fact that it's called the Green New Deal makes me laugh. The fact that they're like leaning into a Jill Stein thing. Um, this is rampantly becoming well, when, a, when I first, a side street when I cafe fir- episode. Yeah, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, what's the Green Party doing now? Like, No, my problem with the Green pro- New Deal... Are we like, okay. Quick aside, then we really have to get back to the point. <laughs> so, viewers, listeners, and viewers, whatever, do not judge me. In 2012, I may have voted for Jill Stein. Based on the prefaces... Uh, for Green New Deal. I think a lot of people voted for Ralph Nader in the previous two elections, so I don't think you have to apologize for Jill Stein. What, in 08 and 04? Well, yeah, but, like, I guess 2012, like, Mitt Romney versus Obama was a little less of a You could have voted nightmare. for whoever you wanted, yeah. I was, I definitely sucked it down and voted for Clinton in this last one. Um, but I saw Green New, like, I was based on the precipice of the Green New Deal. And then Jill Stein became Jill Stein in 2016. And it's like, don't attach your boat in any way to anything Jill Stein said. And yet the Green New Deal is 100% a thing she did. I'm pretty sure all so those people like that were... Acosta Cortez, she needs to like you, unhitch that wagon. You know she voted for Jill Stein. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she course. voted for Jill Stein. To make my point. In 12. I think she went Hillary in the 16. I, ho- I would hope so. Um, to make my point. So everyone talks about the dark. Next week, listen to us uh, as we host Alexander Acosta-Cortez. Um, everyone talks about the Dark Knight not getting nominated. That's why they expended 10, 10 features. But you had a universally praised superhero movie with a couple of great performances. You know, um, two two of them with Alfred Molina kind of leading the way. Where everyone that reviewed it was kind of like, "Holy fucking shit! Alfred Molina is great in this movie." Um, the visual effects are the visual effects. Visual great. effects at, no, the visual effects at that time are not just great; they are re- revolutionary. It has the fact that so many people up at that point. I mean, and now they kind of look a little suspect, but at that point, people did not realize that that wasn't a practical effect where Alexander Molina is sinking into the water. Like mm-hmm. they thought it was just oh, visual effects of the tentacles, but they actually filmed Alfred Molina going into the water mm-hmm. and then added in the tentacles. No, that's all CGI. There is no reason why you have a Finding Neverland in this category. Yeah. Also, when you have Incredibles that year too, if you exactly. want to nominate, if you want to nominate the more kind of palpable superhero movie, sure. That you that, that, you, that you give an original screenplay nomination. Right. To. I was just gonna say the same thing. That leads us to our gold star. That leads <laughs> that leads us to our winner, Mario, which is a movie you hate. Fucking Did you say hate? I despise. Despise. Okay, that was a movie you use. Um, Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby, which got nominated for everything, which won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actor. It Thoughts, Mario? Thankfully. 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 The Lord and whatever you believe in, that Paul Haggis, with one of the goddamn worst screenplays I've ever seen, lost to Sideways. Well, But then... 
they unfortunately felt as though they made a mistake or something like that, and they then the next year were like, "Oh, crash! Yeah, yeah, crash. yeah, 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 yeah." I guess you're fine. Here's here's some Oscars. This movie is one of the most, and we don't talk about Hillary Swank. I think she's good in it. I just think she's a good actress in a shitty, shitty fucking movie. The most emotionally manipulative. Oh yeah, it's boring. Dull, paint by numbers, fucking <laughs> prophetic films in the sense of for the next 14 years, he'll make letters from Iwo Jima, which is fine. But besides that, you're going to get fucking 15 years of Clint Eastwood. And, and for some reason, this Clint Eastwood like is somehow left-leaning. He somehow went crazy over the next, what, Why is he four years? It's, it's a little left-leaning in the fact that, like, assisted suicide and whatnot. Um, that's something that... She's being a good guy. That's something that 2008 Clint Eastwood t- screaming at a chair would not believe in. He'd be like, no, person with a terminal disease, you suffer. I mean, maybe. Um, but this, but even beyond that, like, just watching this movie, I mean, it's, it's fucking anchored. And I say anchored in the fact that it is a thousand-piece a thousand pound piece of iron bedding into the seafloor score that is so fucking grating. It's so slow, so methodical, so dull that it ruins any sort of appreciation that I could have ever had for Gustavo Santillano's score and the fact that every time I listen to the score for Brokeback Mountain, I just hear fucking Clint with garbage fucking score. Well, he didn't write he's, it. He's He's... He did it. He's the he's it's music by Clint Eastwood. Did he write it? Yeah. Did he get nominated for best original no, score? No, he did not. Oh, okay. Um, um, but just this movie is just so weighed down, and then it fucking oh, the has this. Oh, the village got an Oscar most... nomination for the score. And James Aaron. Um, but it just then it just sounded fun. She slips on a fucking stool, breaks her neck, and just like then the movie has a severe utterly ridiculous tonal shift that Joe Cox couldn't save if he got 10,000 hours of footage because this movie fucking stinks because it is the one of the worst screenwriters of the 21st century with the worst director we don't actually admit is a terrible director until Bradley Cooper makes his second film. Who, Clint Eastwood? Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood's a good director. No, he's not. Not, not in the 21st century. Oh, well, I guess. Clint Eastwood's made one good movie in the 21st century. Which is? Letters from Ujima. Yeah, Letters from Ujima. I, think this is, I, I don't think this is, is a great movie. I think this is a, this, I think this is a fine movie, though. And Hilary Swank is excellent in it. 100%. And I actually think she, Clint, she shouldn't have won, but she's excellent. Oh, no. Kate Winslet should have won. But Kate Winslet or uh, Milda Stanton in very good yeah, I mean, I'm going to hedge towards... Eternal Sunshine every time. But. I would lean. I would also lean towards that. But if Emilda Stanton had won, that would have been fine. Especially if it had somehow led to a British revival where Judy Dench wins two years later for Notes on a Scandal, which is one of the bigger actress travesties of the past 20 mm-hmm. years. Um, a Million Dollar Baby is an interesting movie. And, and, it's, and it's winning. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's difficult. It's slow. It's not difficult, though, man. But it's difficult in the sense that it asks the viewer to kind of just sit 
and watch and be manipulated. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think Clint Eastwood's trying not to manipulate you. Yeah, but you have fucking masters, like Michael Haneke at that time, doing shit overseas. I agree with you. That is, like, asking difficult fucking questions. Like, just... Like, like fucking 97's Funny Games is doing so much work to be like, go fuck yourself. Literally, I would... And this movie's just like, meh, I guess. Literally, I would give my Best Picture award to the three movies, obviously, that I have, like, Sideways and the other two movies that are on my list, The Aviator and Eternal Sunshine. I don't um, know what I actually give Best Picture to in this, this movie. Eternal Sunshine would, it would get it. Eternal Sunshine would not be a nominee of mine, but... Which, because you're an idiot. <laughs> it just, it, does, it doesn't... It's a great movie. It just, it's one of those movies that just, like, doesn't speak to me. Um, but it's interesting... Elijah Wood creeps me out. She's supposed to. No. No, I meant but, the human being, Elijah Wood. He's supposed out. to. Oh. He was designed that way. <laughs> um, They're just like, we need somebody to counteract the good son. But I think Million Dollar Baby is, is, is an interesting movie. You know what I mean? It's interesting. It's I, I absolutely you might not like do not. it. No, I do but it not. But it, it has a lot of weird things going on in it. What? What? Just like the gravity of her performance through the whole thing. Like, where does this come from? Where does this dedication the come from? The fact that the manipulative nature of Clint Eastwood's direction and Paul Haggis's very on the nose writing demands seriousness. That's where the presentation of the performance comes from. But where does the performance come from? The fact that Hillary Swank's a great actress. Right. But, like, she's digging into this... In spite of the creators of this motion picture? (laughs) That's not even a point of having this conversation anymore. All right. um, Let's... No, I'm just... No, I'm saying that. Like, like, look at... I want to compare this to to Freeman's (laughs) performance. We would both agree that, like, Morgan Freeman's a really solid actor. Yeah, he's pretty... He's pretty good. I'm trying to undersell it. But Hillary Hillary Swank is, is on the same level. Yeah. Maybe, like, Morgan Freeman's kind of doing the work that the movie asks for it for, well, I think. I think this is... And Hilary Swank's just, like, doing her own fucking thing. Because Hilary Swank, like, kind of was bred in that kind of, like, but I don't I think, want to say wild card, but sort of like it... Like, boys don't cry. It's a lot looser. So she's she's allowed to be... Diff- yeah, she's allowed kind of movie, to be... Though. But she's born in that kind of, like, bred in the sense of... Like being able to do her thing, whereas kind of Freeman comes up from like a studio swear perspective, and it's kind of bred in that, so he kind of follows the direction yeah, of writing. I, well, so, and that's why I'm saying compare like his kind of like really cardboard wooden performance for such a really great actor. The next year he's awesome in Batman Begins, and compare that to like. Well, I wouldn't really I compare that's, Lucius Fox to I fucking. I fucking love Lucius Fox. But that's so but what you were just telling me about be you know um, subjectivity is evident in here in the sense that, like, this performance is obviously better than whatever the fuck he's doing in Batman Begins. Well, no, you know I'm just, saying, I mean? I'm just like, saying, like, com- compare the freedom in it. There's, there's, this movie is stiff in so many ways. Well, Not sure. Explain so much, he's, but everything but the, 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 in like, this is so stiff. So the, the problem that I've always had with Million Dollar Baby is the fact, so it's a problem that I don't have with Unforgiven, which we're going to talk about later. Um, Unforgiven is a great movie. Is the fact that I like, hated that movie when I first saw it. I rewatched it. I was like, I was wrong. I just Clint Eastwood it. clearly looks like it is something I hated about Gran Torino. It's something I've hated about almost every movie he's made since. I think the history, like, you know, the history of film is going to recognize Gran Torino as a bad movie. So it's a terrible movie. But I think people are coming around to that. They should have recognized it instantaneously, like I did, that it was fucking awful. Um, that Clint Eastwood's pulling strings from the actor's chair. 
Not from the director's chair, because he's directing from his acting performance, where he is literally, you can see him kind of, it's almost like um, he's a drummer, and he's mouthing the words that like the singer is singing while like they're performing the song, you know what I mean? You can almost see that in him. And I think one of the reasons why I think Clint Eastwood's performance kind of works in this movie is that he's supposed to be surprised consistently. And I think he's consistently surprised that the thing that he's kind of put in place is working, from a Hillary Swank perspective, is working as well as it's working. And so he's always just kind of like, huh, huh, huh. Which, it seems like a real performance because it is real. Um, which is, which is but fine. But maybe, maybe this brings up, and we can wrap it up on here, one of my biggest problems with this film, and it's rested so much in February or March or whatever, what was it? Uh, February 27th of 2005 when I got so fucking mad. There's so many movies... I loved more than this movie. Sure, not me too. not Million Dollar Baby, not Million Dollar Baby, but so many more movies I loved in two thousand four than Million Dollar Baby. But going into that night, I was like, Clint Eastwood can win. I was I was convinced Clint Eastwood was actually going to somehow steal actor because they weren't going to want to give him director because mm-hmm. they're going to be like, fine. He already won director. We don't need to give him another one. No, they're going to be like, fine. This movie's carried on so many levels technically that we were going to give it to him but when Scorsese loses to Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood like you said surprised by what the people around him are doing that bear like I disliked Million Dollar Baby but maybe this is like the subjective nature that was the turn where I was like fuck this movie well so I mean that's a good like we're going to talk about the aviator uh, we're going to talk about aviator and what he eventually, we're gonna, on my end, we're going to talk about Departed yep. later, which I love, mm-hmm. but in terms of direction, like, this is the move. Like, if, I mean, there's other movies, but like, this is the no, fucking, yeah. you don't, you don't give Clint Eastwood best director over Martin Scorsese. Well, especially because Martin Scorsese is going out of his wheelhouse to make this He's movie. fucking losing his mind. While still making a Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah. And, which is one of the things we're going to talk about when we talk about this movie, is that Martin Scorsese did something he's never done in his whole life, which is he made a huge budget Martin Scorsese movie with digital effects and, like, uh, you know, uh, this um, some period, ugly, period ugly, beyond just ugly kind of like fucking scenes 80s. that Ugly fucking scenes that work so well. Like, th- those golf course scenes are so fucking ugly to look at, but they work so well in context of the narrative being told. Again, I like Million Dollar Baby because I think Hilary Swank is excellent in it. I like some of the other things that it does. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm ultimately, I'm fine with Hillary again, winning. It's not The Aviator. It's not Sideways. It's not Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's really weird that you can have a best director category without Michael Gondry in it, considering what he did versus what it's not, it's not Taylor Mike, Hackford it's not, did. It's not Mike Nichols or even Brad Bird, I'd say, either, like in comparison. Well, because Brad Bird's kind of defining a new language in animated film. Yeah, there's like and like Incredibles now is kind of passe, but Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse doesn't exist without Incredibles. Fucking Up doesn't exist without Incredibles. Which would which would have been fine. But <laughs> I'm saying in in the general DNA of film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Incredibles is doing something. By different. by episode 50, I'm going to I'm going to get you this separate personal opinion from 
Ditto, Mastery. Mario. <laughs> fucking stinks. This is gonna be a real flip. Oh no, up is. I like up, but like I more respect up than I like up. Up is garbage. We were talking about manipulation in film. If we do a bonus oh. episode, of oh no, no most no. manipulative films ever, up is on the top of the list. The thing, and then what the does thing, it do for the rest of the movie? It has dogs, no. and tall birds. We talked about this off air, but I'm going to say this right now: the beginning to up is. Doing everything you need to yeah, do. I'm just like wastes like, it with trash. I agree. I agree because like that part, I was like, "Oh, that's sad," but I was expecting it because I got into that. But then adventures that come, fucking lost it there. Well, because it turns into a video game. No, it turns into a side-scrolling platform side video game. Adventures to come scene where it, you know, flips over and it. He realizes his wife filled out all the rest of the pages with their life. I was like, oh. And maybe this is like, like, like we're going we're gonna to find out this podcast. I'm super sentimental. And the guy opposite me isn't as sentimental. About that, shitty movies? Yeah. That adventures to come and then she fills it with like the rest of their like mundane life. Cares. You just had to sit through dragging a house around inexplicably through anonymous but, weird jungle. Which I agree. That... that most of that movie sucks, but that scene, but I think that movie <laughs> sucks. And this is actually a popular opinion. That movie sucks because, and that movie isn't as great if that movie doesn't suck. Because that scene is one of the best scenes in film ever. Yes, but I was so. Because I'm, it's surrounded by a movie that sucks. So to throw everything back in your face, 12 Angry Men style. You can have the same conversation if you wanted to about something like Million Dollar Baby in the sense that the first time Hilary Swank hits that fucking bag, it's, it is a heartbreaking, emotionally wrenching scene. Oh, don't no, fine. You know what I mean? Fine. You know this, this movie, if this movie was directed, written, starring... But this is also subjective. Hilary Swank, it would have been fine. This is also subjective opinion. You're criticizing me for being like oh, no, overly I'm subjective. Criti- I'm not criticizing. I'm just... This podcast is over. I'm just stating that there's, like, like obviously it's subjective. Like, obviously I'm just, we're, we're having a yeah. very educated disagreement. Million Dollar Baby is not in my top, like, 199. You know what I mean? Surprisingly, nor in mine. <laughs> up isn't, up isn't. I don't, even know where, I don't even know where Million Dollar Baby would be on my list, but I like, I think Million Dollar Baby, I, would, I enjoy I would say it's Million in Dollar Baby thousands. for aspects of it. It's probably in my 2000s, not in my, like, 5000s, so I'll give it that. <laughs> I can't, do you, I don't buy that. Do you know, do you know what else could be in the 5000s? The Alexa rating for Twitter, but it's not, because Twitter's one of the most popular sites around. It's the Alexa rating, I don't even know what that Alexa means. Alexa rating, oh my god, that was a good segue. That was a really good segue. Alexa rating is how you rate websites in terms of their traffic number. So we do bad. We do badly, I imagine. No, but Twitter.com does well. That's true. Because it's one of the most popular social media sites. The homepage for Twitter does very well, I'm sure. And wouldn't you know it? Pivotal Film has a Twitter. At Twitter.com slash Film Pivotal. Uh, if you want to have a conversation with us about the 2004 Oscars or anything else for or that any, matter. any of the Oscars. Maybe not the 1920s. I don't. I haven't seen Wings. I'm gonna be honest. What? The the first Best Picture winner. Oh, I haven't seen it. Yeah. 
But if you want to have a discussion about it, we'll fucking watch it. Yeah. Um, you should. But we no, only if you tell us. Only if you write us a letter at um, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or you can go. if you. Isn't it weird that we have consistent listeners who are just not communicating with us? They just don't care. Or they text us. No, but we have more listeners than we actually know. Sure. And it's weird that they're not talking. I we have, I noticed that we have um, like several being... listeners from Egypt now. What? It's pretty good. I don't know. I, I'm glad he listens, though. Or she. I don't I, know. I think one of them is Gaddafi, and he's, he, like, no, I don't. his death. I, I don't. That'd be awesome. I guess. I'm sure the person that lives in Egypt that's listening to this is, would have an opinion on that. That would be more well-informed than our opinion on how awesome it would be. If... And we just lost several uh, listeners. Um, if that person um, wants to come back to us later in the podcast because he you know, he's misses our voice, he can go to PivotalFilm.com and he can see links to our episodes or how to subscribe or a list of the beers that we drank or the movies that we've watched. Um, you know, Next week we're going to talk about the Lego movie. We're going to talk about uh, Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird. Um, maybe something else. I don't know. I feel like there's something. Oh, maybe. Uh, maybe if we get to the to the film, we'll talk about they were they will never. Oh, oh, they will. They will not grow old. They will not grow old. Yeah. The Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson World War One documentary. Uh, make your make your movies less complicated. Would you be surprised title. to find out if Peter Jackson like created all that footage? Digitally. No. None of it existed. That'd be fine. Especially if it was just Andy Serkis and Toby <laughs> Keeble just jumping around each other. Imagine if that's what it was. And like Sean Bean was just like walking through footage. We, no one noticed him because everyone was just so sad. Um, but so, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. He just play, he plays the guess. Sean Bean is right is in the house right now. He's just walking around in, in the studio. Um, this isn't know. a house. This is a, this is a tower. This is a tower. You live in a tower. You live yeah. at the top of a tower. Yeah, there's per, per several floors above the it's William tower. Howard Taft Memorial Auditorium. The William Howard Taft Tower of Babel. Actually, we can, if we listen closely, we can hear the Deftones 25th anniversary concert going on. <laughs> Why would we want that? Because well, they, 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 Chino, <laughs> well, we the Chino, Chico, Chino, Chico, pay, paid know. us, paid us several dollars. He for paid them. us. He bought the beer tonight. Um, we encourage all of our listeners to go see a movie. <laughs> all, all one person that's like not tuned out. <laughs> a good fifteen to twenty minutes ago. One person that's like I'm indifferent to the Deftones. I can. I <laughs> Who can uses us this. as ASMR? Yeah. Um, we encourage that person to go see a movie drink a beer, and we will talk to that person next week.